Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about power. Uh, how we manage power in our studios, how we manage it on the road, how do we, ma how do we manage that power. So, um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit in the second hour. So if you've got questions about power management, uh, go ahead and throw those into, uh, into Makana. And if you have other questions, you can throw them into Makana as well. In Makana, you can uh, ask the questions, vote on the questions. We highly recommend voting on the questions so that we understand which ones you want to answer first. Um, and then, uh, but if you're not in Makana, of course, you can use just askofficehours.global. That's askofficehours.global. Officehours.global. In fact, you can use that 24-7. Anytime you think of a question, you can just go ahead and throw it in there. So go ahead and save that URL and uh, throw the questions in as needed. And then in the morning, we'll feed those in. All right, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, and he's got a workflow uh, query. Any design flaws, and here's the workflow, NDI capture into vMix with three HDMI encoders, which are linked together, plus a switch built into a case. The laptop would patch into the switch. His school, or the school that he's working with, wants a portable system. And he's got a link there. Good guy. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of schools in this same situation. The question that I would ask back is, well, why vMix? Why do you want to go with a software switcher? Um, where where are the cameras coming in from? Because the length of the cable starts to matter. And I would just go with an ATEM uh, because by the, by the time that you add in everything, those three encoders at, what, 200 bucks a whack, that's 600 bucks, you can... You can get a nice ATEM and you can go SDI and you can just go uh, really easy troubleshooting. With NDI, you've got, those are NDI HX encoders, so there's a little bit of lag. They're, they're, uh, they're not full NDI. So if you want full NDI, you're going to want a bird dog, you're going to want a mage well, and now you're stepping into a lot more money. So, and that latency isn't a big deal, but if you're doing sports, it is a big deal because if you're cutting from one camera to another, you can actually make the ball, you know, like they go to shoot, you cut to the close up and the ball comes back you know it's like you don't want i did a show once where that happened around a formula drift where the car went around a corner and you know you're cutting from the long shot because of the delay it looked like it was doing it again it's uh, sometimes frames start to matter so my question is just why do you want to go ndi i know it, 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 if it's a learning thing then let's look at your work your entire workflow where the cables are coming from and uh if it's for scoring because what a lot of people will do is they'll take the atem feed it into vmix and then USB in, and now you've got all your cameras in sync, and you're able to have one lightweight input into into vMix, and now you can do your scoring and all your titling and your encoding. So that's a popular workflow. A lot of folks that are in this ATEM group that I'm in do that. They they have a nice little case that they pop open with the ATEM, and then they feed it right in. So lots of options. It just depends on what you want to do. And then I'd also be looking at Mimo Live if you're uh, really wanting to go, uh, you know, with a software switcher, especially if you already have some existing Macs, Mac Minis or MacBook Pros at the school Mario. Next question. TJ Asher comes up next from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Since I'm unable to get a copper internet backup to my fiber, I need some sort of LTE or 5G type internet backup. Cable is not an option. Recommend wireless internet solutions. He's looking at $50 a month budget. And note, he's a few blocks from an AT&T cell tower. John? I use uh, the Verizon hotspot as my backup. Uh, at home, it works out really well. I have friends of mine who use T-Mobile. Depending on the how many people are using T-Mobile in the area, those can be very successful as well. I'm sure AT&T, if you have good bandwidth, if you're able to test it before committing to a long-term contract, 
you know, any of those would be a great option as a backup. They work um, perfectly fine for, for Zoom calls or anything that you're doing, uh, assuming that you just have solid connectivity. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, look into fixed wireless and 5G, especially if you have 5G in your neighborhood, you know, look at the wireless coverage maps for AT&T or whatever provider. Check all of them because although there may be an AT&T a cell site near you, there may be others that are even closer. And 5G, you know, typical, I took a look at uh, some of the prices here. Here's one starry internet. This is fixed uh, 5G and their prices go from $15 a month for 30 up and down symmetrical up to uh 65 for 500 so that's that's pretty reasonable and and uh, so check with T-Mobile and uh and Verizon those type you know I did <laughs> I have a problem because I was looking into this and so I looked at my Verizon and here's Hollywood and you see this little pink thing here this is the 5G coverage is this dark red and you see this little pink island in the middle of all that's that's you know probably where I live. That's, you know, I was gonna say, that's Courtney's house. <laughs> it's, Courtney's house. <laughs> it's like, we ain't giving him 5G. Are you <laughs> Is there a curse on you? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. That's astonishing, Courtney. You know, TJ, uh, when I first moved to the coast here uh, to work, um, my Comcast went down for like almost a week. And, it, and I was like this close to purchasing a Starlink solution. I wanted it. I wanted, I was actually just looking for a good excuse <clears throat> to buy it. It's obviously more than the 50 bucks a month, but <clears throat> one thing that's interesting, sorry for the coughing. One thing that's interesting is the, um, is the, is the issue with the fact that when you're in a more, when you're in a busier area, kind of like cellular, when you're in a busier area, you don't get as good a, uh, uh, a speeds on the thing. I, I talk to Keenan all the time because he's got Starlink permanently attached to his, uh, his Jeep. And of course, you know, he's uh, out in the desert and stuff. And he's always sending me screen grabs. And I think, wow, that's really, that's really impressive for your car. Um, but, uh, I use my cell phone on occasion, AT&T, uh, when I, if, if I, I just need to get a couple of things out. I've even done a few zoom calls over it. Go ahead, CJ. The other thing that I'll recommend that I've had a lot of success with, it's, it is a hotspot, but I got this little Netgear hotspot for work. It's a little under 500 bucks, but you, what I like about it is it has an Ethernet on the bottom, so you can hardwire in, and it has uh, a lot of them have this too. It has spots for an external antenna. So if, you are, uh, if you're looking at something like this, you have an external antenna that you can plug in, and then if you physically aren't next to... Uh, your window or somewhere where there's signal, you can fish this out and then you're in good shape. Next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in VR Florida. And he says, thoughts on the new Aperture Spotlight Max as a Leco replacement. And he's got a link to it there. Go, Bill. Looks like a really good instrument. I'll, I'll pull it up here. Um, it's in the traditional theatrical Leco or ellipsoidal spotlight form factor. It looks like it has the traditional Leco lens on the front of it at this point. I was surprised at how much power this guy puts out. It's a pretty expensive instrument, uh, $1,200, $1,300, somewhere in that zone. But it looks like for the kind of job that these were designed to do, which is typically in theatrical to be up on a balcony rail or something like that and project light, 
a long distance that you can then cut because Lecos traditionally have a very hard edge beam, uh, it would probably do really, really well. This would be probably one of the last things I'd take out on a location kind of shoot because, first of all, it's way too powerful and I would have to dim it uh, just tons and tons and I'd be working at the very smallest end of that. Um, you can put a uh, Fresnel lens on the front of these and get something soft, but I, I think there's better instruments to do that. So if you've got those parameters, if you've got a long throw and you want a shapeable light and you're doing kind of theatrical kind of stuff, this would probably be really good. It's probably chip on board as opposed to the old ones, which are what they're making now, which means you have a single point source and that helps with the focusability of it. So looks like a solid thing if that's your use case. Good, Courtney. Yeah, what Bill said, it also has uh, what they call ETC projection lens compatibility. So you can change the size of the projection spot. And uh, it seems to have a more accurate lens system than most uh, lens, you know, uh, ellipsoidals, which yield, a lot of times you'll see a little chromatic aberrations around the edges or, or you know, around the gobo image that you're projecting. I think these you could almost probably put a glass slide into and project a, you know, a a slide of a background or something, you know, other than just a, yeah, they, a gobo. they show gobos in the in the actual um, on their page. So yeah, right. you can absolutely do that. That's great. Next question. Next one comes to us from Kern Kelly in Maine. What lens would you recommend for a Sony FX30 connected to an A10 Mini Pro used for streaming, similar to Alex's office hour setup, but in a high school setting? So autofocus is preferred. Go ahead, John. I really like the uh, Sigma 24 to 70. Uh, it's a 28 uh, lens, so it's really fast. Uh, has some flexibility there. Also, the the uh, Sigma trios, the the primes, they have a 16, 35, and 50. Uh, really nice uh, kit to have as well. Mitchell. Yeah, it's a great, uh, by the way, it's a QR code question coming in from Kern. Um, it's a great uh, selection there, John, uh, 24 to 70, and it's a little bit more because it's an APS-C Super 35 sensor in it. Um, what you really want to do, particularly if you're using it for a webcam, which obviously you're talking about, um, is you want that sweet spot between 35 and 45 so you can like get it right in the area there. But um, as far as cameras go with autofocus, uh, a lot of the uh, lower-end Sonys, have it all the way down, all the way up. So uh, you're in you're in luck there. And if you want to see how good it can look, look at Alex's picture. That's a uh, FX30 with a decent lens on it. Yeah, this is an FX30 with a 1.4 G series 35 millimeter lens. So this is just so you know what that is, what you're looking at. So that's a um, and that is a. Uh, um, the 1.4 gives me obviously a little shorter depth of field. Um, I use a fixed lens so that I can go to 1.4. <laughs> and that has to do with the fact that, you know, the, I, um, the 2.8, I, I, I think looks great, by the way. Um, and I've had mostly 2.8s for, um, you know, 24 to 70 is, is kind of my bread and butter lens. You know, like that's what I put in. For, the, for my space, I picked a fixed lens because I felt the 35 with the multiplier is about 50 millimeter. And I think 50 millimeter looks really nice. Um, for, you know, for someone without having to push the camera into the, you know, outside. Um, so, so, I mean, 85 looks great too, but it's pretty far away. But I think that as you go wider than a 50 millimeter on a full frame, you, you, you tend to, uh, I found that when I did that here, um, it felt a little distorted, like I was a little wide open, a little too wide open. So, um, so I, I prefer the 50 or higher for my, for my space. Um, and I also wanted to have that really short, the shortish depth, depth of field. This wall behind me is about, eight feet, 
behind me. So that gives you a sense of what a 1.4 looks like. It would be a little sharper if I had a 2.8. Um, so that would be the, you know, that'd be the, the kind of the, the process that I was balancing um, in that area. Um, I do think that I'll eventually move to a full frame so that I can go to a 2.8 zoom um, so I can make some more adjustments. It is one of those things like the camera has to be at a certain distance. It's about three feet in front of me. Um, and it has to be at that distance or it will not work. <laughs> you know, so, so it's not, that's the hard part with a fixed lens is the nice thing about a zoom lens that, that, that John recommended is that, you know, you get it where you get it and then you, then you make the fine adjustment. Um, I don't, I have to make a decision about where that camera is for me. Um, so, but, but I will say that that works well. And I do recommend, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I still shoot when I need for production, small production, I still use my Blackmagic cameras because I, I like the way they capture better than the Sony's. Um, I did find my, I was out on a photo shoot yesterday and, and I uh, was taking my Sony and I found my, about halfway through, I switched back to my phone. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this is going to take a long time to get to these images. You know, like as I, was, I had the FX30 out, I was taking pictures of Golden Gate Bridge and stuff like that. And then I, I took them and then I, I, I was taking them and then swapping back and forth to my phone. And then finally I put the camera back in the bag and I was like, I'd just rather shoot with my phone. Um, you know, and so, uh, so it is interesting how we've kind of moved forward. But as a webcam, you know, I just swapped uh, my, my wife's camera for her stuff to a Sony as well. My other Sony, my EV1, not the, you know, no, 10, Z10, um, which is like the little inexpensive Super 35. And it looks so good. <laughs> like it was just, it was just, I was just, you know, the Super 35 sensor with an autofocus. And the, the advantage of the autofocus is that you can go really short depth of field without feeling like you have to rock around or do anything. You know, you get this really, really nice uh, bokeh, but you don't have to have focus issues. And that's the problem we had with... Uh, black magic is that we'd shorten that that uh, depth of field and then you couldn't stay in focus and the Sony fixes that. Hey, go ahead, Chris. A couple of things, Alex. Uh, you say it's a 1.4. Do you actually run it at 1.4 mm-hmm. f-stop? Yeah. Isn't it true that most lenses that it's, it's a little softer. actually, it looks a little better if you don't push it, it the f-stop? It looks a little softer. It doesn't look necessarily look better. It just depends on what you want it to look like. But but it's sharper at five point six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's, especially around the, edges, said, around the edges. Around the edges, you tend to start to see more uh, softening, which I don't care about. So the right. center tends to stay in focus even at even at one point four. It's the it's the edges that start to you know come off when you're at both ends of the lens. And then curious, you said you were you were out with your camera. You were taking photos or video. Uh, a little Sony bit of both, camera. but mostly it's a, it's an FX thirty. I was mostly taking stills on, in that okay. case. So you had it out. You had a battery on it. You had it with you. It was in your hand. And then I switched what back made, to my phone. What made you switch back to your phone? It seems it seems like the I reason know. to go for the phone is the convenience. But you already broke the convenience by bothering to take all the stuff <laughs> no, with you. The funny thing was is that that so um so the. Uh, what, what switched me back to my phone was, A, I wanted to share some of the photos that I had. And I was like, oh, I can't share them from the camera. It's going to take a while to do that. And B, I'm so used to it. And the framing was easier. The, to be honest with you, the screen on my iPhone is so much better than the screen on my camera that it was easier for me to see what I was shooting. Um, it was easier for me to frame because I had a fixed lens on my, on my, I don't have a zoom lens for the Sony's yet because I haven't needed them. And so, you know, I had like, I had a, I had a 14 millimeter or a 35 millimeter. That's what I had. Those are the two Sony lenses that I have. Or I could just jump around and get the framing the way I want it with my phone. 
Um, but I really, it was really my need to a have GPS lo- information about where I was right. shooting because it's really like the problem that I really have later. And I know people, will, I, I'm I'm going to get a bunch of comments in Discord about, hey, there's a way to tag your fo- your camera. You're going to get the comments roll. right here. Are you kidding? I know, but but there's, <laughs> there's a way to tag your ca- your fo- photos and the camera later and everything else. But I never do that. And so the thing is, is that anything I realize that anything I shoot with my camera kind of goes into a black hole. Like I'll never find it again. You know, the, the advantage now is that I said, if I say Baker Beach, which is where I was at yesterday, if I say Baker Beach, it's just going to show me where all the, all the photos that I took with my phone from Baker Beach. It's not going to show the ones that I took with my camera. And, and so I was like, I was like, these are really good photos. I mean, they're really nice. This is really, I didn't know that there's a beach in Baker Beach that you get a, definitely a postcard view of Golden Gate Bridge, not the Great Baker Beach picture. that when you park, you have to walk up a hill and then down, and I still can't feel my legs. But but you can you can. Um, <laughs> I was like, why? You know, I was walking up, going, "This was a horrible what was idea." This? What? what day was this? What this was yesterday, yesterday afternoon. Okay, so I'm right. I'm right. I'm writing this date down: December fourteenth, the death of the DSLR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so anyway. 14, 2023. Anyway, and if I had more, if I had more zoom lenses, I might have, but it was really me going through my head of, oh, I won't be able to find these photos later. I better take some, I better take a full amount. December 14, 2023, that's the DSLR. Go ahead, Mitchell. A current for uh, reference, this is a Sony FX3. It's a full frame uh, sensor, but I think that the zoom uh, would be a better choice for you, particularly in a uh, educational uh, institution, because you may have different scenarios that require a little more range than that. So uh, I've got a 24 to 70 millimeter 2.8 GM. Uh, that's the top of the line Sony for that particular size. And I do get a decent amount of fall off to, for the bokeh, uh, but I have it wide open. Yeah. And, and um, that that really works pretty well. And I don't know what the, Kony, the Sony equivalent is. So the, the lenses, if I go out and actually do a shoot or what I did, used to do with a Canon camera or with uh, my Blackmagic camera, I have 16 to 35 uh, a 16 to 35, a 24 to 70, 70 to 200, 100 to 400. And then I usually have <clears throat> 85, 85 fixed and a 50 fixed. Those are the, the, that's the lens group that I typically, if I take that out, I can shoot almost anything I want to shoot. Um, you know, but, but if I'm going to get one lens, if someone said you only get one lens, it'd be a 24 to 70. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. So for me, I, I just, what you're saying resonates so much because I had that circumstance at an art walk I shot about two and a half years ago uh, for one of my clients. I was hauling the big Blackmagic Pocket 6K and I was trying to be really up in quality, but I did it. I put that down and I shot with my phone for about five minutes and I just left the other one in the car for the rest of the day. It is so much more convenient to be able to do run and gun on a phone kind of form factor. And there's not that big a delta. There is a delta. There's a difference. And to me, I think of it in terms of, am I going to go take pictures or am I going to go make pictures? If I'm going to make them, if I'm going to take each frame individually and try to absolutely maximize it, then I want those lenses. I want all the manual controls and the rest of that. And if I'm just taking pictures, I'm astonished at how good they come out on this computational photography world we're living in with just a phone. Although I have to tell you, I'm starting to feel like I'm more of a picture maker with my phone than I've ever been before. Just the last five or six times I've gone out to shoot. So my brain is almost like hurting because I'm getting good results, really good results with the phone. I will say it it really the something turned on the for me on the um, iPhone 14 
Like it's just the quality. There's something about the camera quality in the iPhone 14 that that kind of pushed me over the edge of oh, this is, you know, this is what I should be. I mean, I, I just got really comfortable with with shooting that. So yeah. Uh, next next question. Fermi Parker in London comes up next. Thanks for all the advice for nearly three years. How can I turn my Dana dolly into a motorized slider? Is there an update to the Emoto Spectrum? I think those are two separate questions. Uh, no, they're, 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 they're connected to each other because the Emoto, you might be what, what you want to use with a Dana dolly. Go ahead, Courtney. Oh. Yeah, I think there's a version four of the Emoto out. I found another one out there from uh, Kessler. Uh, that's for $785. It's similar to the Emoto. It's a, basically a timing belt-driven attachment for your Dana Dolly. Uh, so it has the timing gear here and uh, comes with a timing belt. Or you have to order the timing belt. It's 5 bucks a foot for that and the clamps to put it on either end of your rails for the Dana Dolly. So there's there's an alternative other than the uh, the uh, Spectrum, Emoto from Spectrum. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, they sell them both together in uh, this little kit. So they obviously have a lot of people who want to do this. This is the Dana Dolly slash Emoto Spectrum kind of combo kit that provides all the accessories that you normally need. But you're up there around $4,000. So if you're serious about it, know that they, the company has people who are doing this. And so it's probably a reasonable way to go. To me, a Dana Dolly is a slider and, and what this can do kind of – diverges but i guess people are using them together uh yeah <laughs> i wouldn't um so the day you know the day the dana dolly uh is a great dolly system by the way so the dana dolly basically it's a big set of rollers that that sit on top of um a you, you can put them on speed rail so you can set these things on speed rail they're big they're easy it's relatively inexpensive to put heavy cameras on it you can get some great moves out of it it is not designed to be a motorized dolly. There are there are great dollies that are designed to be motorized dollies, and I would highly recommend using those as motorized dollies. There's the original the original uh, what was it? Um, uh, anyway, there's um, there's a there's a bunch of these that are that are really good at oh, the, the original slider, which is by the way the beefiest slider I've ever seen in my entire life. It's like like welded together. Um, but there's all these other ones that will do these um, these long and short uh, slides. The Dana Dolly is not that's just not what it was designed for. Um, and I just wouldn't, you know, I I just I'd be really surprised if you get really great results from a motorized version of a Dana Dolly. Um, we've used them in a lot of shows, and we have operators back there moving them back and forth and going around. But I I yeah I'm. Um, unsure whether that would really turn out. I would I would highly recommend thinking about a dolly that was mission specific to that, to what you need. Now, next question. Another QR code submission today. Andre Dole in Berlin says, let question, as I couldn't attend yesterday, is it possible to bring a live camera into Resolve for a live LUT correction preview? That would shorten the process a bit for him. Go ahead, John. You can do this. I'm not sure if it's worth it. It requires a deckling. So if you haven't already purchased a deck link, loading in a video from a memory card or from a QuickTime capture is probably going to serve you better. Uh, yeah, I, 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 um, we've done it a fair bit and it's great. <laughs> like I will say that, you know, now we're using Ultra Studio. So Ultra Studio Mini, you will go in there and it'll be identified by Resolve. And there's a little, I don't have Resolve open right now, but there's a little button in, in, the, in Resolve that says live. And now you see a live video and what you're doing is you're applying all those nodes to the live video and getting to see it. And then you can save it out as a LUT. Um, and it, um, I, 
when I was working on the one that I, that I was working on, because I'm walking back and forth, definitely thought about that. <laughs> In case you're wondering, it does not see the ATEM input, which is what I really wanted. Like the UVC input from the ATEM would have been great, but I couldn't get the, I couldn't get it to see it. But you can, a Declan card or an Ultra Studio, both will show up. I haven't, we didn't have any success with the little Ultra Studio, you know, like the little one that you buy. We have the, we had success with the mini um, that's like a half rack um, uh, to, to see it. It has to be one of those, uh, a specific version that has to be to, to be seen by it. But I, be, I do believe the de- Declan cards will work as well. Next question. Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand. Up next, what are the panel, what's the panel using for video scopes and audio levels during the show? I go ahead, CJ. Well, we're really lucky that we have audio levels uh, as one of the features of being on the office hours panel. So I don't monitor the audio levels on my computer except to look at uh, maybe the mix pre. The video levels, no bombnoscope has been recommended a bunch by the panel, but some people find it's too steep uh, to do continuously. So if it's going to be more than two minutes, there's a free trial, but after two weeks, it only lasts for two minutes. There is a plugin for OBS called Color Monitor. And uh, it's pretty nifty because what it lets you do is, uh, oh, you're going to see a lot of video feedback now. That's good. Uh, but uh, what Color Monitor allows you to do is uh, you can have a zebra, vector scope, a waveform, false color. I have a little zoom in for focus on my eyes. And uh, that, I find that really handy because it can just, I can have a windowed projector of that scene uh, somewhere uh, just in my eye line, just as a confidence thing. So color, the Color Monitor if you want the, for OBS, if you want the free one. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, my monitor space is kind of limited, so I'm with a hardware solution, and um, I use one of these little uh, Andy Cinnies. Sorry about the the, uh, infinity thing there. But um, as you can see, you can see my levels, you can see my uh, histogram, you can see all that. So it's a a pretty handy uh, little device, and there's my (coughs) interdrome. Pardon me. Yeah, the um, uh, so the 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 two that I the, the ones that I use right now. If you can get Spectre as an audio scope, and we so we use the again these these um, scopes waves uh, audio meter. When I'm talking about scopes, um, my favorite audio scopes are Spectre. They're made by they're sold by Zenaptic, and I think they finally started selling them again. Um, and there's like a little group that you have to buy together, but but Spectre is still the best ones out there, in my opinion. The ones that I use on most machines, because the Spectre one's really expensive, is Sonic Atom. Sonic Atom is probably the second best one, at least on the Mac, um, that you can get, and that's by Loud Labs. They're also the ones that make Soundesk that we talked about in the past. Um, and so, um, and, and there's just a lot more little tools inside of Spectre that we use in our audio history and stuff like that. There's really kind of specific things that I need that I really like in Spectre. Um, and, uh, the uh, and then for video scopes, um, I almost exclusively use Nob Omniscope. I used to use a lot of other things, but um, the the folks at <laughs> the, the, the Nob Omniscope they're getting a lot of input time and pixels. They're getting a lot of input from some pretty high end folks, and and what they're adding is all the things <laughs> that you would want in a in a scope. In fact, that's the piece of software that has me not feel like I need a piece of hardware. You know, um, it's not. There are places where I I want to have a Fabrix. Because of portability, um, there are some there's some uh, SDI bit inspection that that the Fabrics hardware does that I wish was in something on the on the Mac. Um, but but outside of like the, for the general use of of uh, of the of these things, um, you know, I, there's a handful of places where I, you know on a big production that I'm going to want either a handheld Fabrics or a uh, 
Um, uh, but but I think that or the or the hardware. But other than that, Omniscope fulfills all the things I need when it comes to video. Go ahead, CJ. Just in the some of the little things that that Nob does that you're not expecting. Like I was, I just I drug a little window around my face to try and check skin tone, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, it put a mask over that, and now I can see just it's, that. But like that was like whoa. I use that all fantastic. the time. Like like so, you have this. There's this. There's this setup with 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 Nob where you can you can just select a certain area inside of an image to see where it's showing up on the scope. So it just it just and especially when you're trying to match your skin tones uh, to the line. Um, you can just go because you can see a whole bunch of stuff in there, um, and you just select just what you want to make sure is on the line, and it just boom, it's there. It's it's a really it's a have it's you a great pinned, Have you done the like option click or shift click where you pin just a specific part of the image, and then it it'll highlight that on all the rest of the scopes? No, it is so co- like I don't even. It's so cool. So cool. Anyway, so, we're gonna have those guys on sometime next year. Uh, they we, I, we've been going back and forth with them. They're, it's really cool, really cool software. Uh, next question. Callum McCorkle's in from Bournemouth, Leeds, England. Uh, I've heard about different wiring to get better sound and video. What is an isolated ground mesh network, and how do you build it to have perfectly clean signals? Courtney? Well, these days it's a little bit less important uh, than it used to be in the past with analog signal paths where uh, ground differentials could get into your audio and your video. Uh, but nowadays with digital signal paths, it's less important because you don't see those ground loops as much since you're sending just ones and zeros and noise. Uh, AC noise on that just reduces sensitivity of their senders and receivers, but it doesn't necessarily show up in the video or the audio if you're sending digital. But uh, what it is, is is you have problems with uh, things that are grounded connecting AC together on different sources of, of equipment that have different points of ground. In other words, they're, in an installation, you have a ground plate that's usually put under into the ground, literally, uh, with a connection to it that drives the, the ground plane for all the AC hooked up to that particular transformer. Um, and, you know, there's some mesh networks where you have multiple ground plates and then there's a single point distribution where you have a single ground, a large single ground plate, and that is distributed to uh, the entire building. Uh, it's better to have a single point ground than a mesh ground, I think, uh, because there's less chance for differentials from one side of the network to the other side of the network. But there is a, I, you can go on IEEE and they have a whole uh, a published book on uh, mesh bonded versus isolated bonding earthing network for indirect grounding. You just have to pay for it and download it, and it'll have everything you need to know about the difference between both of them. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, a lot of people go to a, a lot of trouble to make sure that their ground is very clean because it does affect the audio quality or the video quality. So um, if you're having problems and you can't track it down, um, a lot of times it's the uh, quality of the power or the grounding that you have in your building. Good, Bill. And be careful about having too much of a good thing. I only say this because for the last year, as many people know, I've been doing audiobook work. And we're seeing people get rejected for having too low a noise floor. Literally people who cut in zero sound on something like an audiobook, and that is an unnatural sounding thing. We talk a lot in video about room tone matching between different shots so that the background doesn't vary. But if you're suppressing it down to absolute zero, it can be a very unnatural sound. So most of us don't want no background noise. You want appropriate all the way through where the levels don't shift, What depending on whether you're putting a slug know. or something I, in there. 
But I think I think this is mostly just dealing with the ground so that you don't have buzz. And I think you definitely yeah, have to try and to avoid that. Yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. So so the um uh the uh, it is really important to start thinking about it when it matters. You know, so you're going to want to bring an expert in to to figure out the grounds. Ground differential is I mean, we're going to do a second hour at some point on it. We're not talking about power today, but we're not going to talk about it today, but the it is pervasive. Like I was talking to someone about the fact that I was talking to an electrical engineer about about you know stray stray voltage in general, which is, stray voltage is something that is a problem for our audio, but it's also a problem for things like cows. It kills cows, <laughs> like you know, and so and so my dad my dad does a lot of cases around this, and so because the because the the big power lines will have a differential and they'll pass power into the ground, uh, th- you know, and the cows will feel it and then they won't eat and then they, you know anyway. So the um, but the interesting thing is it's just fascinating how how ground works. And so I think that there's a second hour there that we'll probably spend talking about how grounds work because I think that we have to understand mechanically because it's just a fascinating, like the fact that it will always look for the easiest way home is just a, a fascinating part of nature that I think we'll, we'll dig into. Next question. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia. Panel, any suggestions for using Blackmagic, uh, the Blackmagic uh, camera app the image is too grainy. This was Wednesday on Conversations with Tony Mobley. Help, please. And he's got a link there so you can see it. Yeah, go ahead, John. Uh, looking at it, uh, at least through my teleprompter screen in front of me here, I did not see a lot of grain. The color balance looked to be off. It uh, looked to be shifting green. Um, I would also just make sure that you're at the native ISO uh, of the camera uh, on the iPhone. Make sure you're not pushing the gain too much. Uh, doing that will definitely introduce grain, but I didn't see anything too too um too noisy uh, when i was looking at at least in the monitor right in front of me yeah i didn't see any grain either a little maybe a touch of green but i didn't see any i don't see any grain at all and i will say that chris sabato you look great like when are you coming on the show like (laughs) chris looked amazing so he's got the lighting he's got the background he's got the mic it was it was great it was when and chris we already know chris knows a lot so come on on uh anyway next question Next one from Douglas Carmichael. Would there be any other vendors that make a toolless rack similar to Ubiquity's offering? And he's got a link to that one. Um, if you're looking for the rack mounts, I know that uh, Jason uh, Beish uh, had suggested ones that will work in any rack. And I just can't think of the name of them. These were the, um, you know, they were screwless nuts. Um, so this is the, I don't know what they're, I think that that's what you're looking for there. Um, Toolless. I think it's just that they all kind of pop together. But you can you can get ones that are. Um, I think well, it's hard for me to get to it right now. I have some that I that I that I tested that just pop into the square. Uh, it's a you know I don't know if you can assemble it that way. I mean, all they're doing is just putting screw mounts on. You can replace everything that you have on a lot of these things with hand screws, and then it'll be toolless. Uh, it's a little. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't want to do this the whole time anyway. Like just just as an aside, um, you know, power drills are a really powerful tool um, when it comes to building racks, um, and I'd rather use a power drill or power uh, screwdriver with the right. Uh, tension setting than do it with my hands. Um, go ahead, Chris. What, what would be the advantage of this? Um, so you don't have to carry a screwdriver with you? I guess. Is your life so complicated that throwing a screwdriver well, it doesn't have a little thing. is a it, problem? I think it's, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, the problem that I'd have is that it, it just requires you to use all ubiquity stuff. I mean, like, you, you I mean, you, yeah, I don't know if it would work 
I guess it does. It has little racks or something that you can do it. I think it's just, it's really designed for people who have decided they don't like building racks. For, I mean, for, for those of us tools. who, I mean, I, 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 I will admit as someone who builds a lot of racks, um, I kind of like the more general purpose you're paying. I mean, that, uh, that's a lot of money for, for a tool, for a rack, um, you know, so that, you know, a lot of us would probably spend less and have a power drill. I mean, you know, so the power drills are, are one of the most important tools uh, in your rack uh, is, is doing that. You know, I will say that a, doing a 55 inch rack with hand tools is without a power drill. It's hard. Um, you won't, <laughs> so go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, you see a difference a lot uh, on racks if it's for audio or if it's for uh, communication or internet or mm -hmm. computers. They always have those captive screws that you lock onto the rail. Um, yeah. So there are different applications. I mean, the, the one thing I will say is that, that what I didn't like, and the pencils are going to open my mic and they're typing, Chris. <laughs> Somebody. <laughs> oh, anyway, so the uh, um, the uh, I, I think that um, uh, I you know there's there's a whole bunch of like so there's ten thirty twos twelve twenty fours and then there are just square openings you know along those things and we used to hate when we saw a rack that had the, the square you know the openings where you insert your own your own screw in and I was like oh I don't want to do that that's going to be a pain I have to admit the square holes in your rack are called adulting. <laughs> so, so as soon as you, as soon as you get used to having them, you stop using the 1032s and the 1224. You might have a 1032. Typically it's a 1224 uh, uh, screw that goes into those, those square inserts. And the reason you do that is because all you have to do is strip, strip a couple of those on a rack. And now you can't use that rack until you replace the entire thing. You take everything out. Now you strip one and you just go, oh, I'll just pull that little thing out, put it back in. And you realize why at every server, you know, when you work with like real server rooms, that's all you see. It's because, you know, the IT guys figured this out a lot earlier than the, than the AV guys. <laughs> it's like, don't do that. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. You know, what I do a lot of times is I found these things from sheer luck, uh, these press-on uh, knurled screw head so you can buy uh you can buy them for different size uh um, hex head uh cap screws and you just buy the right cap screws to fit your rack and you press these knobs onto them and you got a toolless method of connecting your equipment and you just they're just thumb screws no tools required next question on Oahe, uh black bear marshall in the Oahe nation up in the beautiful pacific northwest has our next questioner it was said that the office hours website is an industry leader please define industry leading in this context you can't just state this without saying what specific things in a product make it an industry leader and who has publicly reported this as a source uh, I, this is usually a Sunday question, so I'm just addressing it because I just want to let people know that if you ask questions internally about office hours, we'll typically push you to Sunday. But um, I just wanted to make sure we talked about it. Um, you, you know, just to let that let you know, internal questions are generally a Sunday question, um, so you can ask again if you want to do that. But I don't know where anywhere on our website where we say we're an industry leader, but maybe we do somewhere. I don't I don't know where that is. Um, I will say that there's probably no other show like this in the in the uh, <laughs> in existence. So so I don't so I think that. Uh, we're a, a unique thing in the industry, but uh, go ahead, John. I think maybe in context to the accessibility score, we're much higher than the average website. I think we're oh. scoring high over 80% for accessibility. It's been a big focus yeah. for office hours. Uh, and so it's great to see the website representing that in a good way. Yeah. And, and industry leading, I think is, you know, uh, I would say the top 75%. So I think at least I go ahead, Courtney. 
He probably asked ChatGPT what is office hours because and, I found that ChatGPT uses this phrase "industry leader" in the area all the time. So there you that's go. probably where it came from. Next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona is up next. Jack says, for a paperless film set, what are your favorite apps for scripts, scheduling, and all things organizing? We're looking at Scriptation, Movie Magic Scheduler, and Program Similar. Oh, we should really bring on a script supervisor. There was a script supervisor that, you know, um, she had been doing it for maybe 30 years or 40 years, and she worked on a show with us last year, and and she was completely on her iPad. Like there was never, and she's like, I am never using paper. Like, like you, you know, it was, and um, I'll have to go back and look at what she was using there. But it was, she she was able to, I, all I know is she had the script in front of her. She was able to annotate it with her iPad, with her, with her pencil, like write things on top of the script of what was happening, underline things, make things work. And it was really exceptionally um, easy to use. And it wasn't like a, industry standard, but I don't remember which one it was. So I'll, I'll try to find it. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I haven't looked at this kind of software in a long time. There was a guy named Stephen Greenfield who kind of invented this whole genre uh, with um, uh, screenplay systems uh, for, you know, formatting text and stuff for screenplays. And he also then created, I think, Movie Magic uh, for scheduling. Uh, so look for, if you can, if they're still around, Stephen Greenfield and screenplay systems uh, they were one of the originators of this. I don't know what's available now in the market, though. Yeah, I think that it might have been scriptation, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, but it was uh, – now, one thing that we do use that I use a lot is um, – the other one that I was looking at here is um, I use Movie Slate a lot because you can put so much information into it and it's really easy to use. Um, so when you're – it's just for the slate, but it's – instead of having to do all the – marker stuff <laughs> like I just type things in so I and there's a lot of things that can save and integrate and everything else and so I find that useful next question next one comes from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge Colorado and Jack says anybody using AI warp with 360 link I'd like to show 9600 baud modem rotary phone CRT monitor punch card computing while on camera discussing subjects prior to 1994 AI warp with 360 link um, I don't, I think you have, Jack, you've reached an area that we don't, that we haven't seen. You're, you're in it's the. pretty specific. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it warp? A 9600 baud modem? I haven't seen one of those in uh, AI a long at your command. Time. So warp AI, that's kind of an interesting product. Let me see. The, um, it is, uh, it's integrated into your, ter it's AI integrated into your terminal. It's, um. But it's it's warp AI is what what you might be looking for, um, and uh, so you can download it for your Mac. I don't know if it, it doesn't look like it's available for Mac and PC. It looks like it's just talking Mac. about like a desk view. It's a warp. It, it lets you go. It lets you. Um, yeah, I realized that my it. kind of brain locked when I saw I'd like to show, and then it's 9,600 baud modem rotary phone wow. CRT monitor. Wow, no, no, punch card no, computer. no. Yeah, I know, but but uh, Warp AI, so so what it does, oh, man. Okay, I get it now. It took me a second to come around. Um, all right, so check this out. So this is what you type in is search a file using uh, regen and output the file, and then it wrote the terminal command to do that for you. 
Like it's, this is, yeah, this is. Oh, uh, AI for terminal commands. Like how do I fix this error on my, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing a, uh, you know, something here. Oh man. Okay. All right. That's cool. Okay. Alex has just lost another I'm in, day. I'm in. You know, like it's just, there's so many things I know how to do in the terminal and I'll do them, but there's all, then I just run into these holes where I just go, oh, I don't understand how to do that. And then I figure out something out of the way. And sometimes I, I, man, I do man and, and I try to figure it out. But a lot of times I just go find another way to do it because um, I don't have the time to sit there and read the man pages and do all the things. And that's why I'm not a particularly good terminal user. This fixes that. Theoretically, um, it might go horribly wrong. It'll give you an R dash dash. I won't say it on here, but but it, it'll, as long as it never tells you that, um, it should be fine. <laughs> Next question. Next one comes from Guy Cochran here on the panel from Seattle, Washington. Did Canon start shipping a new lens? If so, what is it? And, and he's throwing a Cochran. Throwing a Cochran. We call a Cochran. It's, it's, it's asked by Cochran and answered by Cochran. That's why we call it a Cochran. Throws the ball. He catches the ball. Yeah, go ahead. Amazing. Go ahead, go ahead Yeah, I was watching uh, one of these uh, Instagram reels from our local uh, rental house, and I didn't even know that this uh, lens came into the market and, and it's shipping because he had it on his uh, camera. So years ago, the Canon uh, 5D Mark II came with a 24 to 105 as a kit lens, but it was an F4, and it uh, wasn't parfocal so this one it's an rf mount 2.8 with image stabilization and you can get it with a power zoom so with a red komodo you pop this on this is going to be for documentary filmmakers this thing is going to be a powerhouse so 24 to 105 is a lot of nice range i mean especially at 2.8 this is beautiful 3000 that's a lot of lens for that yeah, that's great. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Trivia question: Do you know why Canon makes their big lenses white? Because you can then you know <laughs> that the Canon lenses why? Why do they make them white? Heat. The oh. black lenses gather more heat. It it knocks the lens out of whack. They made them white to keep them cooler. Wow! There, there there's there's um, our the trivia you know. for the day. Yeah, now go ahead, you go ahead. Know. Yeah, do, 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 do. Go ahead, uh, CJ. important in Arizona. And forgive me, I'm a 60 Mark II guy. Does the Can you take an RF and convert to an e, to get it onto an EF or something like that? Or how, how much trouble do you have converting no. those lenses? No, you can convert, but it's not going to be as fast on the on the autofocus. So that's one of the things about the RF mount. But there are I've RF got, to EOS adapters. I've got that 24 to yeah. 70 in that uh, same 2.8, but I'm always feel like I just want a little bit more zoom. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, Canon has really locked down the lens. You know, they, they're not letting anybody use the, you know, produce for the lenses. And it was interesting. I had a conversation a couple of days ago about someone who had to then make a decision. And this is what you want to be very careful about as a camera manufacturer. And we'll see how this all turns out. But camera locked down the new lenses. And so they have an old Canon camera and they have to now decide, like, do I want to buy a new camera with a bunch of new lenses like that was the and canon you know is locking it down because they were you know everyone's making all this money off of their 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 platform and they know the lenses are important but that person is moving to sony like it was like you know and it was like they were just like i had to make a decision and i looked at what i'm doing now but you know and i was no way i could leave the canon ecosystem because i've got you know 16 lenses or whatever but when i had to make the choice I then had to make this, this is what, this is always the careful thing you have to be very careful of is not have, making people make choices about things. And they're, so they're in the process of selling all of their lenses, all their Canon gear and moving over to Sony. 
um, because they were made, they were forced to make a choice, you know, like, and, and that was it, you know, like it was like, they can make the EFs better or they can, they move, they felt like they moved that lens mount to lock it down. <laughs> and so, and I don't know if that's the case, but it was, but it was, uh, but, but it's, it'll be really interesting to see how well Canon does, because I think that Canon's, I mean, I have a lot of Canon stuff and a lot of, I have a lot of Canon lenses, but I think that they're a little behind. I mean, I think that Sony has really done a really good job of of kind of lapping everybody on a lot of the tech, a lot of the technology, except for overheating, <laughs> which they haven't figured out. But but the um, but I think that uh, it'll be really interesting to force everybody into a new sp space um, and and see how whether creators make the decisions that they that they want. Because I you know the uh, um, Sony's spending a lot of time investing in creators. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. I finally upgraded from an Amplify Alien Router, Ubiquiti's consumer brand, to Unify Express. What interesting features of the Unify platform are there? Uh, that it's more stable. <laughs> the Amplify, as, as an Amplify owner. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, I mean, what you get is a really nice dashboard. It really gives you good insights into the network, uh, what's happening, who's talking, when they're talking. Those can be very beneficial if you're, you know, seeing network spikes or anything that's happening that's affecting the quality of the, your connection. Uh, you also get really good insights, the ability to, to program and manage the wireless devices. With the Unify Express, I believe you're limited to five devices total. So, you know, you can't throw a bunch of cameras or anything like you can with, with the larger units, but... You know, it's solid for most, you know, small, small home offices. Next question. Sean Johnson, New York. Hi, guys. Is NDI virtual input for Mac still only 720? If so, are there any hacks to make it feed 1080 into Zoom? I don't I don't think that there there was a limit there. I think it might be the limit for Zoom. So the, I guess the question for you is, are you? Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my question for you on on that in that case uh, is, are you on a ten? Do you have 1080p working other in other places in Zoom? So that would be the the only question I'd have for you because is is it something that is um, uh, just a Zoom Zoom oriented problem or is it something that because uh, I don't think does anyone else know? I don't think the 1080 is limited to, to 720 going into into Zoom. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Well, if there's an old Intel Mac and it only had a dual core processor, uh, it might be the Zoom limitation when they do the core count and limit you to 720. But that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, that, that actually might be the case. Um, uh, hold on. Sorry. Uh, next question. Douglas Cormichael says, Alex, I remember when you mentioned that large Mandalorian-style LED walls and or volumes need a fair amount of power. Are there online tools, like maybe something from HDR, H2R Gear, that can help calculate power consumption of a system and balance loads appropriately? Uh, go ahead, John. Uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with any system online. I use Excel, uh, but you're really going to want to pay attention to the manufacturer specifications and then pipe that data into whatever you're using to track and then break out your circuits appropriately and understand also like how much data you can push through the Ethernet cables that are going through the video processor. Understand how you're going to have to break apart that image as well. Uh, next question. Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada is the next one. With the release of the first five episodes of The Monarch Legacy of Monsters, what was the panel's thoughts, good or bad? Did it, has anyone seen Monarch yet? 
Yeah, I, I watched the first two episodes. I thought it was charming. It was interesting that uh, that the big stars didn't show up in the first couple. It's one of these things that uh, has the traditional history of, of Godzilla and Mothra and that kind of thing, but in a story arc. And I, there's a lot of production value there. They spent a lot of money on it. I was enjoying it, but we got distracted and I didn't go back to it. Go ahead, CJ. Yeah, we're three in it at home watching it right now, and uh, I think it's really beautifully shot. I wasn't sure if there was intercut footage with an earlier film that I just didn't see or not, but uh, I felt like the it took me a second though to understand with all, with the uh, there was a lot of time jumping back and forth. So it's not something that you want to if you're the kind of person that watches TV and goes on your phone at the same time. This is not the show for that. You need to watch because you will be very lost. You know, I, I it, it's interesting. I have really stopped doing that. If I'm going to sit down and watch TV, I just watch TV. You know, I don't, I don't do a lot of other things. Um, and I find that I, I just feel like if I, I'm wasting time at that point, like just, just blowing time. Like I'm either going to be entertained and I'm going to be in what I'm watching or, and I know that that's very like not what most people do anymore. But I get but annoyed I that, when people come to my house to watch a movie and then like I get my home theater, it's all set up to watch the movie and then they're on their phones. I'm like, I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> You're offended. Get out of my house. No nachos like I tried, for you. I worked really hard. You know how much I made the popcorn and everything. I know. Did you Did you make good popcorn? Did you use it? You're You're even closer to Amish. Uh, Amish. Uh, oh yeah. There's, than, we We get it by the barn load. Oh man, it's the Amish. The Amish uh, popcorn is the best. Um and the um but uh, uh yeah I I um. Yeah, it it is. It, I, I I do find that it's also because I watch stuff that I feel like I have to that are complicated enough that I have to watch. You know, I have to pay attention to it. I, I have to admit that I'm just. I, I would love to say that I'm I'm watching the Godzilla, but right now Reacher just came out again, the new second season. And so we, <laughs> I, I tried not to watch both of the first two episodes at one time. I was like, okay, I'm just going to hang on, just go very slowly. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, if you're looking for a monster movie or a monster show, it's not really that. Monsters make cameos. And the rest of it is a lot of plot uh, threads that are very hard to follow. Um, that's a very, I like the, just, you know, uh, that's the, a very Godzilla approach. Like, like we, we see things like when you watch, when you go back, I, one of the things that I felt was really interesting. I saw, I went to, in the theater to see Godzilla minus one because it had so much, like, they did this for $15 million. And um, so I wanted to see what it looked like in the theater. It wasn't, I mean, it, they said it looked like $200 million. It doesn't look like $200 million. It looks like a, a really good $15 million. <laughs> you know, so there's lots yeah, of little shortcuts. It's well shot. It's certainly it's, well it's shot. Really and the effects, effects are effects. spot on. The, the, but, um, the effects, the effects really are... Don't um, like, I really don't like the plot lines because you really have to invest a lot Monarch of time. Or, 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 no, I was talking about Godzilla minus one. And oh, so I'm the, talking about the, yeah. this Monarch in, show. In Godzilla minus one, um, I guess what I would say is that... Um, that I what I really liked about it, it was a very classic Godzilla movie. And I think that if you look at Monarch, it's probably if you're not seeing the monster very often, if you go back and I, I grew up watching Godzilla movies. So I mean I Sunday morning it was always like <laughs> instead of going to church, I went I watched Godzilla movies and and Charlie Chan. And anyway, so um the uh but the there wasn't that much if you really look, remember it, back to those things, there wasn't that many Godzilla because it was really expensive to do it. And so um, so what they did is they they would have these moments where suddenly Godzilla's blowing up everything and there'd be like a five-minute piece of that. And then it would go back to lots of, like, you don't see the monster. And that's a that's also a Shyamalan, you know, M. Night. <laughs> like, like you barely ever see the things that happen. And the idea is to build it up so that they matter. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, it reminds me a lot like Walking Dead because uh, it's really not about the zombie <laughs> creatures. It's about some interpersonal stuff that's going on. And then every once in a while when you least expect it, there's a Walking Dead right there. Right. So it's the same the thing with Monarch. Yeah, uh, Bill. Yeah, one of the sub-themes of this is Kurt Russell is one of the big stars in it, and his son Wyatt also stars. But the thing is, he doesn't show up until like episode three, which was surprising to me. And I thought, well, this feels like a really international release. They're looking for the global film market, and it, it wasn't so much a tentpole for the American market. It was global and because of that, I think the the amount of time they spend setting up plot and getting you to care about the characters and, and the rest of that, I think you have to stay with it a while if you want to really enjoy the whole thing. Yeah, and Kurt yeah. Russell should be about 90 years old. I don't know how they figure that out. Yeah, Looked the, pretty the, good in there. <laughs> yeah, the um, – uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting to to see how they – a lot of them – you know, there's a there's kind of this pentameter of a lot of these shows, which is that I'm going to give you a bunch of effects in the first episode, and then the and then at the last episode I'm going to give you a bunch of effects, so you'll come back for the next season, and then the middle ones like three and four and five, you're like, eh, this is very good, like, and you wonder whether, and then they pick it back up again, like, you know, if you if they can get you through that trough because they save a lot of money doing that, you know, like they don't show you as many effects in the middle, and then they put the money into into the ends, and so it's it's an interesting, um, you know, puzzle to to unwrap there. Um, but I do like, I thought that the best, the the best one ever for like a cameo was with, I think it was, I think it was Air Force One where they really promoted that Steven Seagal was in the movie and they showed all these things with Steven Seagal in the movie. I'm going to do a little, a, a bit of a, a, a spoiler. I'm just warning everybody. Steven Seagal gets killed in like the first 10 minutes. And it's like, and the funniest thing is just, is just that they, oh, I just ruined it for Chris. <laughs> it's 20 years old. I'm going to tell, I'm just going to tell you. So anyway, so, so the funny thing is, it's like, it just, it's a snap. Like it all just happens really fast and you're just like, and they put all the promotion to it. I thought it was the best thing. When they did it, I thought it was great. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What are your thoughts on using cheap signaling devices during live productions? And he's got a link there to something. I got Courtney. I'm not sure what they're going to be using this for. I think the thing that maybe I got, here's what came up, which is this wireless doorbell. That's a cheap signaling device with a remote uh, IP65 button that triggers a loud chime uh, with 65 different choices of chime and five volume levels. I'm not sure how you'd use that in a live production uh, unless you're going to use it as a doorbell sound effect. You know, ding dong, it would work. Fine, but I don't see any reason to have a wireless one because you can just put a microphone on a door chime at the sound effects desk and uh, and pipe it to your PA system. But uh, I'm not sure of the use that he's talking about. Go, John. Yeah, I just think of like how important is this to your show? And is it worth spending something more on? I've done, if it's just like notification when it gets someone's attention, I've done simple point-to-point -point, uh, voice over IP stuff. Uh, just using SIP to be able to communicate and set up like small phone networks so I could call or notify or set that to a ringer uh, that just rings when you dial an extension that you build out. Very simple to do and probably going to be much more reliable than than this doorbell from Amazon. Go ahead, Chris. I don't know, Roscoe. It seems pretty straightforward. As long as the majority of your crew actually understands Morse code and can you know use it as such, I think it's a great idea. If you're, if, I assume you're single, signaling people to go on stage or signaling people to do things. I'd be more likely to just find a switch and turn it on, <laughs> you know, just just use, use some kind of switch that I turned on. I don't know. I know it's wireless, but um, 
I will say that for queuing and for interacting with folks, I try to minimize the amount of wireless that's in a production. I know some people really think it's great. Um, I'm wireless, obviously we use wireless comms, but when it comes to doing signaling, when it matters, um, I want a wire that goes there that does the thing because um, oftentimes it doesn't <laughs> go to the thing. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What's the most difficult to produce Christmas show we might see this year? Uh, uh, real quick, Mitchell. The Star Wars uh, Christmas special. <laughs> I have a feeling that the, the Hannah Waddington one was pretty hard, actually pretty hard to produce. I looked at some of the, I, I watched the video a little bit and uh, I was like, it's production value. Apple put some money into that. So <laughs> like they, they, they put all the money into it. Um, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting. She's actually pretty good singer. Um, and uh, so quick reminder uh, that we're going to jump into power here in just a second. Uh, and uh, we will have our new volunteer meeting t uh, tomorrow at 9 a.m. I will post that in Discord, and you can also sign up on the email. So you can go to the email uh, that we send out every morning, and you can sign up for volunteers, and you'll get added to that um, automatically and directly. But if you're in Discord, you'll see the link uh, a little before 9 o'clock uh, tomorrow morning. So if you're interested in being a, a panelist, or I'm sorry, a volunteer, jump in. All right, welcome back. Uh, and we are now going to talk about power um, and talk about how we use power. And, and power is a, uh, you know, it, it's very different um, as we, um, you know, kind of go from, uh, you know, our office power to event power to mobile power. I think that, you know, like thinking about what those things look like obviously have much, much different structures. Um, so the panelists can raise their hand if they want to just talk about how they approach it. I know that for me, you know, my, my home power, of course, I'm not trying to rebuild the infrastructure of my house. Um, and so, uh, so I have, you know, I, I, most of the things I do think about what I put in my, in my um, office in that I want it to be a relatively low draw. You know, like I just, I'm not going to put lights or other things that are going to take up a lot of power, even these little lights that I have in my background here. Um, those are, you know, six watts. <laughs> like so they're, they're they're very very little leds that look like floor, um, uh, incandescents but i would never put an incandescent because that would take too much power so um so the uh and create heat and all kinds of other fun things so so anyway so i think that you know it's really interesting for us to think about um uh what we look at there i know for me as well as i have a series of i have three ups's in my in my room in my house that i buy so, so when in doubt i buy a I buy the APS 1500 VA uh, UPS and I buy the same one all the time. <laughs> like, and the reason I do that is because then all the batteries interchange. <laughs> you know, they all interchange. They're the, they're the first ones that APS, they're the lowest ones I think that APS makes unless they've added new ones where you can take the battery out. So you can take the battery out. If you're flying with it, you can flip it and put a little thing on it. And TSA will actually let you ship them, but you just have to uh, put them into, into a plane, but you have to flip the battery um, so that the contacts aren't there. That's what makes batteries catch fire is that they start pulling. Um, so if you flip, the, you can flip the battery in the, in the, in the 1500 BA. I have one set up to my non-critical things like lights and everything else. I have another one set up to, um, uh, for my computers and everything else that I need to run the show. And I have another one just dedicated to my router. <laughs> like, so my router and modem and everything else, I have them all set up there so that I can, guarantee that and that will last if we lose power here and we we do think about it enough uh, or a fair bit and the reason that we think about it is that 
Now, we lose power a lot. We're in Northern California. Welcome to California. Um, I know that we spend a lot of money on taxes, but evidently we don't get power. That doesn't come with the taxes. So the um, uh, so the um, uh, the APS, um, the, the other thing about it is, is it tells you what's going on on the front. So you have buttons. You know, it, it's, it's giving you information. Um, it is... So it tells you, like, for instance, in this draw, this is how long I will last. That is a super useful number to have. Like, I know that it's 16 minutes or it's 21 minutes. I am looking for a minimum of 15. <laughs> you know, like, I, I want to make sure. And, and like everything else that I do is I try to minimize the load that goes through it. So I'm trying to um, be at 60% capacity. You know, like, I, I try to keep it at, because it may surge, it may go up, it may go down. Um, so I want to make sure that I'm still running below that, um, you know, that 60%, you know, it's 40 to 60% is what I'm trying to keep these all inside of. Um, and so, so anyway, so those are the, I mean, at home and then, you know, at work, you know, or what we're doing, then we're really starting to talk about dedicated power, you know, so we are, you know, we're looking for shared grounds, we're looking for making sure that we have, you know, oftentimes, I think the nominal, um, uh, we, when we, someone asks like, what do you need for your racks in your room and everything else? We're usually asking for a 200 amp service, you know, 200 amp single phase service is what we want to have there. Uh, we do have to figure out, you know, do we have two sources of power that we can switch over to? If we don't, um, then we have generators. And so we, you know, and, and for shows when, when we didn't have them in, uh, we didn't have two sources of power in 3210. And so what we did is we, we literally had a generator outside that we were now, we didn't do the the kind of this. We were a little too um, superstitious to have an automatic switchover. So what we did is we had enough UPS that we had a solid fifteen minutes across all of the all of the racks to switch over, and we had a very few number of places that we had to switch over. There's like four places that we had to. I believe I think it was four, um, but it wasn't very many things that we had to switch over to switch all the racks to the generator. So um, and we would practice that. <laughs> so so anyway, so that so that is a um, you know that's different. And then once you get into you know doing it remotely, you know a lot of times what you're doing is thinking about is it shore power, is it um, remote power? You know, is, are you, shore power is coming from the building. So I'm gonna you know or I'm gonna or am I gonna bring it? Typically referred to as a Jenny <laughs> or generator. Um, and um, oftentimes we do a little bit of both. We usually want two sources of power, like everything else. We want two sources of internet. We want two sources of this, and we want two different. PowerPoints, um, you know, to, to have there. You do have to think about it throughout the entire show. We had a show where we did the entire rehearsal on one on one generator. And the goal was at 6 a.m. we would switch to two generators because that saved us like $6,000 a day and it was like three days of setup. Um, and uh, well, and the client wanted it. I recommended, fortunately, I recommended that we leave them on the whole time. Um, and uh, they, they turned it down. And then the head gasket on the main generator died at 3 a.m., <laughs> three hours before the second one was brought back up, and that caused a lot of chaos. Um, and so the um, uh, so so those are the things. You want to think about all the things that need to be taken down. One of the things that I do when we set up our gear remotely is I'll pull the plug out of something. So I'll just pull the plug out and see, make sure that everything's on the UPS. So I, you know, whatever, the main plugs, I'll just pull them out and just look at what happens. You should hear a lot of beeping and a lot of the, the all the, but no monitors turn off, no and I've had situations, we had one in um, the Excel uh, center in, in London where they just miscalculated the power and half of the, half of the building <laughs> lost power. <laughs> you know, like the circuit's blue for half the building for a pretty large event. I mean, there's 8,000 people there. And, um, and the whole room that we were in all went black. 
except for uh, except for the stream. You know, like, so the stream, all the modems, everything else. And if you want job security, have a client see everything in the building, including the main room go black. And your little, like, your little island is all on and you have, and, and, they, and they run over and go, well, what's going on? And we're like, everyone lost power. We have a, we'll be right back slide up. Uh, we're still streaming. You know, like, it's it's not what you want for a show, but it does definitely reminds you that it's it, it does happen. Like, those things do happen. And that's the one thing you want to be careful of is um, thinking about that. The other thing that we worry a lot about is clean power. So making sure that the power that you're getting is clean or it's going through something that's going to clean it. Um, we had a situation where we were getting square waves instead of sine waves from a generator. And um, it the some of, the, some of our UPSs didn't actually die, but they did start smoking um, because they were getting the wrong thing. Now that would have destroyed our entire uh, infrastructure. Had they had those, had we been direct directly connected to that power, none of our electronics would work, and that was two hours before a show in the middle of nowhere. Like that would have been, hey, I know that this was the launch of your new product, but we will not have a show today, you know. And so you really, these are power is a really integral thing that you want to take into account. Go ahead, Bill. Well, Alex has done a beautiful job of talking about live shows, and it's its own special beast, and I think that secondary and tertiary backup is mission critical for that. I've been mostly in field production, so mostly I'm concerned with powering gear uh, from the the top end of having to do a remote shoot outside a building and we need to light it up, all the way down to literally the power that can kill you in a AAA or AA battery if you don't manage them correctly for a particular piece of mission critical gear. At the top end, I when whenever I'm going to bring a generator on site, I really want a real gaffer. Gaffer is the chief electrician on any set. And it's just you're up at that area where it can be dangerous if you wire things poorly. You don't want to have bad grounding and be running a generator and having a lot of wattage running around your set, particularly if it starts raining or something like that. You want You want it really done right as a safety measure. You move down from that, and most of us, when we started out, were using kind of the big brick batteries, Anton Bauer and V-mount batteries from Sony and other people. And to me, it was interesting because I spent a lot of money on chargers and those kind of batteries, and they don't last forever. You get a few years out of them if you're really lucky and you treat them really well. But they're expensive. The chargers were expensive. The batteries themselves were uh, expensive. In the middle of my career, we saw the old traditional batteries kind of get pushed aside by lithium mixtures and NICADs and things that were better. They lasted longer. They were less heavy. Uh, and so we were able to work with those for a long time. But eventually I saw a migration as equipment got smaller and we were into more camcorders and less the big shoulder mount cameras to things like the uh, Sony NPF series batteries. They're, they're much smaller. They're pretty dense in terms of the amount of power that they hold. And the great advantage and the reason that I bought a lot of those and most of my field power comes off of those is they're adaptable. You can find a lot of things like a little sled that'll take an NPF battery on top of a DSLR or a a Blackmagic pocket cinema camera and run that for a significant period of time. In the case of Blackmagic, way more significant than their little L um, batteries that only last 15 minutes or so uh, in the camera. And then down on the bottom end, I also spent a good little bit of time looking at and investing in the Eneloops and the things on the small area to take care of wireless body packs and things like that. Some of the things I learned real quick is when I buy them, I date them. You always put 
something on the battery and you write the date it was put in service. Because again, like the batteries at the top end, they have a certain life and a number of charge cycles. And if you don't manage how your batteries are aging, you can find yourself completely charging something overnight, relying on it on the field, and you're only going to get an hour instead of the three or four or five hours you're expecting. That's particularly dangerous in things like a radio mic system where you're really expecting that talent to be able to keep going and you find that your batteries are aged and you start getting radio hits on them. So uh, batteries, power across the board is one of those very important things to pay attention to, manage, and create a structure so that you're always sure that when you need to power something up, it's going to power up and last. I will admit that I, I, I um, my ritual usually the day before I go anywhere is – knowing exactly where all my power chargers are and making sure that all my batteries are at 100%. <laughs> so, like, I just want to make sure that it takes time. It just takes time you know, to, to do these things. And you can very quickly find your way out. And I start, you know, I start marking them with little post-its of, like, this one's been charged, this one's been charged, this one's been charged, to make sure that I have a stack of batteries that are ready to go um, to make that actually happen. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're not providing the power distribution for your tech equipment and you're going to be plugging into the wall, uh, it's always a good idea, especially if you've got a case that has power distribution in it, is a couple of things to look for. Make sure that the source of power you're plugging into in the facility uh, isn't a, a GFI. If it's your main source of power, uh, ground fault interrupters, these are what the sockets look like. They usually have two buttons on them. Sometimes they're red and black, and sometimes they're just white. One's for test, and the other is for reset. And what those do is they trip uh, if they detect any voltage uh, going to the ground connector on there. And that's kind of dangerous. If you're plugging in different equipment uh, that is plugged in somewhere else, uh, into your system and it's coming, the signals are coming in over B and C cables, let's say, or audio cables that have a common ground. It can trip these ground fault interrupters at, and when you least expect it. And you don't want your whole case of equipment and signal distribution going down in the middle of a show. So uh, uh, make sure that the, and these, these GFIs are required by code in most bathrooms and in most uh, kitchens. So you'll find them there. Usually they're not, they're kind of expensive. So most electricians won't put them in on every outlet, but be careful about plugging into those. I know they're there for your safety, but your whole show is going to go down. If somebody plugs something in that's connected wrong to a wrong ground. The other thing is uh, test. Uh, if you're going to be plugging into power that you're not distributing in other words, somebody's house or some venues location wall outlet somewhere, pick you up one of these uh, uh, kilowatts. They're about 30 bucks and they can tell you, you plug it in and it can tell you what the voltage is and how much current your equipment is pulling. So turn everything on in your rack um, and then plug it through the kilowatt and see how much current you're pulling. If you're pulling more than uh, 12 amps, I'd see about having another source of power because most most uh, uh, situations have 15 amp breakers uh, back and you may blow the breaker if you're anywhere close to going over 15 amps. So be careful about the amount of current you're using. And the kilowatt can tell you how much current you're using over a longer period of time too. So it can track all of that stuff. Two good things to have. Go ahead, John. Yeah, so when I start thinking about power, I start also like not even just two sources, but what are my devices that are single homed? 
So you really want to start looking at potentially adding in the in your rack automatic transfer switches that are able to plug into those both those power sources and leverage that, whether that's uh, before the UPS or even inside. If you're going to do like A side, B side power, most of the stuff I do is is more data center related. So I'm running A and B side power to every rack, and then any single home devices I'm supplementing with these automatic transfer switches. Um, what Alex said is great. I love the 60% rule. Um, a lot of times I'm deploying uh, redundant UPSs as well. And so for that, I'm, I'm sticking closer to 40, 50% because I'm, I'm trusting that failover is going to happen and I don't want to exceed uh, any sort of thing in that, in that capacity as well. Um, really take into... So, and, to, and in this case, in this yeah. case, what you're doing there is you're just to kind of outline your you have UPSs on everything, so there there's no interruption. So when that automatic power transfer happens, even if there was a glitch, the UPSs are all gonna be still managing the power in between those that dropout. Yep. And then we also put the devices before our UPSs that will actually take uh, extra signal to ground, and those can fail first before I break a giant UPS unit. So just like looking at you know from my perspective we're managing um uh, very large ups's we're running at 480 volts um, we're doing bus bars into racks those those are much more complicated and, and you're talking a lot of current that you know it can do, do a lot of damage so we just want to be extra careful with anything that we're plugging in we know what it does a good also practices if you're having anything that's using you know high volume of of electricity as we always burn everything in so before anything enters my data center or enters an idf it's running for multiple days we understand because fire anything like that could happen or a faulty component we want to make sure we're burning those things up before we permanent install uh, same thing i do for anything i do in the road case is just making sure it works as i suspected i pull apart pull it back together build it all burn that rack in and then before i deploy anything so those are my thoughts around the, the just the generals of power yeah, and and you know we're talking a lot of us are talking about redundant power because that's probably what we think about the most. The other thing to think about is when you start to build racks is PDUs, you know, your power distribution, and um, you know these. A lot of us are buying trip lights. Well, that's how you get started, <laughs> you know. Like, is that I'm going to put a trip light on my rack, and you think about that as your power distribution. But these these um, these power distribution blocks can get much more complicated. So you know you want to think about as you start to build larger racks, um, having PDUs that, for instance, are available on the internet. Um, we have a lot of PDUs that we put into larger rack systems, and John can probably talk to some of these where I can tell you how much power it's drawing. I can tell you what outlet is drawing the most power. So when you talk about, the, like, this is like the giant version of what Courtney was talking about with a kilowatt. I have every outlet. I know exactly what's actually happening. And I can turn those outlets on and off. So if I need to route, you know, if I need to refresh something, something needs a restart, um, I can simply just turn its power off. Um, you know, now that has its own risks. You want to be very careful. <laughs> like getting If someone gets in there and turns on things off, it, it, it creates a little bit of havoc. But it does allow you to manage those things more effectively. So, and, and I, I have to admit, 10 years ago, if someone said, you know, what are you using for your rack PDUs? And a lot of these run vertically up the back of the rack. Um, I wouldn't have known what to say. You know, like, you know, like I'd be like, I don't know what I'm, what I'm using. Um, and 
The other thing to look at is that a lot of these are not um, the C-15s that you're used to. These are, you know, these aren't the wall. You know, you typically, I think they're, uh, they're a lot of different things, but they can be C-14s. You know, you're, yeah, you have C-13 a C-13. to C-14 is what you typically yeah. see. Uh, and those are like much more secure for permanent installs. 100%. Um, and then you can actually uh, also get ones that have like a locking mechanism. So they'll expand into the port so they can like withstand vibration, things like happen. Uh, you'd be surprised at how much vibration happens in a steel building. Like we install <laughs> these in all our IDS because we have power plugs falling out and we right. replace those with that. And all of a sudden that went away. So, um, you know, just little things you don't think about, you start seeing at a larger scale. And then you start addressing those issues one by one. Right, and I just want to outline the 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 power. Since we're talking about power, I just want to have this little um, public service announcement that the uh, the power that goes into the back the the cord that goes into your the back of your computer is not an IEC cable. It, well, it is, but that's not the def. It, it is a it is one of an IEC. All of the cables are IEC cables. <laughs> it's just which version of that IEC cable. So a lot of people we get into, we get into this when we're loading in and people will be like, oh, get me an IEC cable and I'll hand them something and they'll be like, oh, that's not an IEC. I'm, I'm like, it is. You just didn't ask which one you wanted. Do you want a C8 and a C7, which is like the figure eight? Do you want a C13 to a C14? The one that you plug into the wall is typically a C15. There's lots of different versions of of how these, these look and you got to get used to looking at them as C something and you can very quickly, I'm not going to put them up here, but you can find that that information. But it's really important because, um, and then what you do is you, you end up getting a lot of jumpers. Like a lot of us get, I have a lot of different lengths of those so that when you're building something, you, you, you're not using, you, you're not pulling it straight to it, but you're able to figure out the route that you're going to do and you have something that's as close as possible. And, you know, there's some people that I know that build those. I don't. Like I don't want to. I don't want to be the one that wired the thing that didn't work. So so I try to find ones that are as close as possible. Uh, go ahead, uh, John. I think, and then Courtney. You just want to add something else, John? No, I was just going to talk about okay. C thirteen. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so C thirteen. Be precise. Um, you know. Anyway, so uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, well, Alex, did you look up in your little book of see something, say something? Uh, what the uh, power connector for that uh, HP oscilloscope behind you is? I don't know what it is actually. I don't know if it exists anymore. Um, I'm so I. Uh, it is a little bit of a project. So Courtney, uh, uh, no, over here, Other show. Cor- <laughs> Courtney uh, gave me that little oscilloscope, and uh, it's got like a different power supply. And Courtney's like, we well, can just put pins on it and, and plug it in. I'm like, I don't want to put pins on it and plug it in. I, I have to have like a, a connector for it, and I can't find it. So um, what I'm doing right now is is I am. Uh, it is a project that's happening over Christmas is I'm going to build a 3D model of the, you know, I'm digitizing it, like just so I have like a little, like, you know, um, so I have the data and then I'm going to print something that will go in there properly and then I'm going to put the power into that. Um, so, And how um, long is it going to take you to get that UL approved? <laughs> I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to be past the UL on that, on okay. that one. So yeah. I'm just going to, but I just want to do something that I'm going to, um, but I'm going to build that out a little bit more um, well, so that I feel. That's a safe way to do it, yeah. Yeah, use I, TPU. I think it, yeah, that TPU is what I'm planning to use yeah, for that. Okay. So, so the um, so it'll just kind of pop in there. So, so stay tuned. I will I will show everybody once we uh, once we figure it out. By the way, CJ, did you notice I have the brick wall? I have the same brick yeah. walls. I don't know. I you know the so I pushed it back a little bit. Um, it's another thing. We won't get into it anyway. So we'll talk about that. On someone asks a question about it, I changed my my background. Next question. Next question comes to us from Matthew LeCount in Oakland. Building out a flight case for switching shows, recommendation or need for power conditioning? Thanks. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Well, the go-to usually for rack case power distribution is Furman. And this uh, MD8X Plus One has one outlet on the front of it and eight on the back. It has uh, these little pull-out lights that are really handy. So if you uh, if you uh, put it in the bottom or the top uh, rack mount uh, of your five-up or six-up, uh, it, it has a voltage readout on the front of it and these two little pull-out lights that, that kind of point up or point down depending upon where you put it in the rack to light up the front of your equipment. It has a single switch and it has one outlet on the front to plug in, you know, the extra stuff that you're going to want. And they're reasonable, about a hundred bucks. You can find them at most guitar centers, any kind of uh, place that sells audio video equipment. Uh, that's one way to go. Another thing to, to realize is that when you have these power strips that are mounted in racks and you have a lot of things that are powered by wall warts that are plugged into the back, figure out some way to attach those wall warts to the power strip so they don't fall out when the case gets bumped. Because when you're shipping something that has a bunch of wall warts plugged in, the weight of that transformer sitting on the back there will work its way out and all those wall warts will be unplugged by the time you get there. So I, I usually sometimes put a piece of uh, Velcro, either hard Velcro or the soft Velcro, one in the power strip and one on the inside of the wall wart. So when you stick the wall wart, the Velcro kind of holds it in there, keeps it from vibrating out. Um, so that's one solution. The other is tie wraps, which are dangerous because you can't unplug it in an emergency. But uh, think of some method of securing those wall warts into the power strip. Yeah. And one thing that um, I would not recommend, well, we used to do this and we've kind of moved away from it is we, we try to not put the, you, you want to rack mount your UPSs sometimes into your, but the problem is, is that they're really heavy. And when you give a lot of weight, a lot of G's, they bend the rack or they push into other things, you know, when they're being dropped upside down or whatever, there's a lot of weight and there's a lot of inertia there. So we kind of got into the habit of just shipping the UPSs separately, you know, so we, you know, we, we have them, you know, again, these 1500 a VAs um, that we're going to do. Um, now we do, do do them when we, so like flight case can mean a lot of different things. So a flight case, I'm, we're going to assume that you're actually checking in. Um, so that's what I would do is to typically have a separate Pelican case with my UPSs that I, that, I, that I would go out with. I wouldn't, if I'm going to a location that I don't know, I am not going to just have power conditioning. I am going to have a UPS. And it's, it has to do with the fact that, you know, we've had ones where forklifts ran over our power, you know, while they're setting up, people tripped over the power. Someone didn't think this power was important. You know, people were breaking down while we were still streaming. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that can go wrong. And I will not do a show anywhere in the world. I mean, like literally I, I was in Rwanda and it was that people thought I was crazy. I found a place that sold the 1500 VAs and put them into place for a show that we were doing. And of course, tent lost power and uh, someone ran over to me. What's happening? I'm like, nothing's happening here. <laughs> like, 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 like I have a stream. I have a, we'll be right back slide up. You know, like, like I'm, I'm fine. Uh, you lost audio and you lost part of the lights <laughs> like, but that's not that's not my that's not my in my purview anything in my purview has got a backup you know and so that's the you want to you really want to think about that because you get you get bit a lot i would say a solid 15 percent of the time that i've not had a backup i've been bitten by it um in some way shape or form next question comes from Callum McCorkle in Bournemouth Leeds again. How do I make it so that external power connections for our briefcase systems or mobile racks are completely waterproof? Is True One a waterproof option or maybe CEE? Wow, that's a great question. Um, the 
I mean, it, and, and I have to admit, uh, I'd love to see your cases and what you're doing and why you're doing that. Um, I don't build things that are waterproof uh, because I don't put my equipment in a place that it would need to be waterproof. So I, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you mostly because I won't do it. Like I, I will be like, hey, where's my tent? <laughs> like, Or I'll buy a tent or bring a tent or do something. I don't work in, I don't tend to work in environments where, uh, and, and I think some people do, uh, like I haven't had to work that much on the ship. I've worked a couple times on a ship and we've had to worry about that a little bit, but, but it ha I haven't done a lot of waterborne things. But if I'm, if I am on the ground, I have paid attention to that, that process. In fact, I had one where we had, we got a lot of rain at, a, at a, an event and we realized there's a 400 amp power supply that's going right past our booth that's underwater <laughs> like you know like the, the water's going over it and and that's when i told them you're gonna have to move us somewhere else we can't be here like you know like i know we've all, we're all set up but this isn't gonna this isn't gonna go you know and um and so uh and usually when you list the problems like hey people might die you know or the or 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 your show won't work i don't know which one you think is more important but you may lose the show halfway through the, through the event so um so we let's let's move this somewhere where it's not in the rain uh, go ahead john you know it's, use gravity as much as you can seal the inputs and outputs uh of the power going into the case um just remember that water will most likely always find a way it's like <laughs> So anything you can do, like nothing is waterproof, even, you know, IP67, whatever rating they want to do it, it can withstand some water, but water will find a way. If water gets onto the electronics, it will fail. And so anything you can do to avoid it outside of inside your case, meaning, you know, wrap it in plastic, anything that, that will withstand water getting off of the device is going to be your best bet. Right, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, kind of what John said is is depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to make something so that there's wa no water ingress into your case when it's being shipped and not plugged in, you know, you've got those connectors that are exposed to the outside. Use silicone to seal them up on the backsides and around the edges of the uh, connector where it's bolted into the case. That'll prevent water ingress. Uh, but a waterproof connector for AC, I, I guess you could get those. They're going to be kind of expensive and I wouldn't want to necessarily use AC power into something that I'm exposed to heavy rainfall or something or big puddles or underwater, God forbid it falls into a lake or something. I would not want to use AC connected to any of that stuff. I'd use some type of DC power. Good, Bill. Yeah, as was said earlier, I was just looking it up, and there's true unconnectors from Laird, but they're IP65, so they're not completely waterproof. And I, water goes everywhere, so there's it's making something like this waterproof for high power situations really difficult. I, I was really thinking, I was thinking about that, and you know, the thing that I hadn't thought about before is the potential of using something like I have a, a you know, a hot water boiler than my house, you know, it's like a Zurichi or Zurushi or whatever that, that keeps a bunch of water hot for tea and stuff like that. And it's got a magnetic one. And I realized it doesn't have anything going into it. You could theoretically have a point on a case that is completely hardened, you know, that, that is there, that is magnetic, and you can just snap it on to the outside and have it deliver power to the inside, the inside's on battery and stuff like that. That'd be an interesting way to approach that to make sure that it's totally unified. You're not like, it's not a seal. It's like, it's part of the case. Interesting. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, back again with, have you ever avoided using orange plugs at a venue? Do you prefer them over generator power? I go ahead, Bill. 
So when I was uh, building out my studio, um, I asked specifically for two circuits, and I wanted clean power and dirty power. And, and clean power, everything audio was going to go on there. So in uh, things like hospitals, you often see two different colors, and that just means that one of them is kind of filtered power with low noise, and the other one is general AC power. Uh, so if I'm not using audio equipment, I do stay away from the orange thing, thinking that there's some sort of important equipment on that circuit. And they've distinguished the two sides of the AC outlet in order to keep noise creating stuff out of there and make sure that the stuff plugged into the clean power circuit works appropriately. Um, it's just been a habit of mine forever. So yes, I, I avoid using them wherever I see them unless I'm sure that I have something that's not going to inject noise or, or problems into the AC system. Go ahead, John. Yeah, typically in the venues I've worked in, the orange plugs are the isolated ground, and so there's some extra separation from the rest of the system. Um, I would, If I'm going to use those, I'm just going to make sure that everything I put on it is clean and, and not going to add any additional noise. Yeah, I'm usually, I think in most venues, I'm told not to use those. <laughs> like, so, so those aren't, those aren't for you, you know, so, so that's, that's usually the, how we, how we approach it. I'm, I don't think I've ever been in a facility where they said that that was okay to use the orange plugs. So that those are, as I said, they're isolated grounds, they're for them, and they generally don't, they're jealous of the, of that pipeline. Uh, next question. Yeah, you don't want noise going into the heart monitor circuits. <laughs> be you know. bad. C.J. Donington, Pennsylvania. Do power conditioners like a Furman genuinely protect equipment by sacrificing themselves during a lightning strike, or is this capability exaggerated by manufacturers? Good, John. Uh, they do what they can, but a large enough strike will, if it can arc across, it can still provide damage. Uh, the jewel rating is something to really pay attention to. You know, um, a direct lightning strike is going to be difficult for anything to maintain, but having equipment that wants to die first is definitely your best practice to make sure that you're doing the most you can for equipment. Uh, sometimes in the event of a really strong storm, things I care about in my house, I'm going to just remove from the wall. Um, that, you know, I just don't even have to worry about that um, becoming a problem. Yeah, I've definitely, um, I try to minimize the number of things. Now, I, I know that I'm not following all the rules of, of power, but uh, I try to minimize the number of things that go into the wall. So um, I do spread it out to, uh, to a couple different locations, but I do have, you know, I know where the circuits are on my in my room. I have two circuits in my room, so I know which ones are going to where. But I also have just a, those UPSs are pretty much managing almost everything in the that 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 are going that's going not necessarily these little background lights, but everything else um, are being managed by the UPSs. And so there's three places to pull things out of the wall if we get a lightning storm. Uh, we don't have very many here in Northern California, but if you do, I can very quickly get things unplugged. Um, all the important things can be unplugged in you know less than a minute. You know, and um, and what I'm doing oftentimes is I will look at a at a storm. And I count. So you grew up in a country. And if you grew up in the country, you generally know that it, you know, it's a little bit conservative, but you generally calculate seven seconds a mile. You know, so you just go, if I count to 14, that storm is two miles away. I'm not that worried about that. Um, if I get anything less than about 14, I'm starting to like unplug things. You know, like that's coming, that's going to, that may come, especially. And you'll see, you'll see most people that I grew up with, you'll, if you see lightning, you'll see them just start counting in their, their mouth. It's going one, two, three, four. 
you know, and we're trying to figure out how far away that is. Because for a lot of us, we were on a tractor. You know, like, and we were like, the tractor is a great place to, for lightning to strike. And so we were like, how long will it take us to get the tractor back into the into the building? And so we were, you know, making decisions about, you know, safety. And so um, as a result, though, is that I, I do pay attention if I see lightning. Um, and when I leave for a long period of time, if I'm going to leave for a week, I usually unplug most of my critical gear just in case something happens when I'm gone. Um, and so, so those are the things that I keep certain things in because all my security and everything else gets, stays in and all my cameras and, you know, all that stuff. But, but outside of that, I, my electronics, like my computers and stuff, I pull out of the wall, uh, if I'm going to be gone for more than a couple of days. Um, but, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So I think that you do, uh, the, yeah, enough voltage is going to be a problem. And we won't get into this too much, but lightning rods are actually particularly useful. Like, you know, they're not put the, put up there for decoration. Um, they actually are pretty good at moving the voltage from the top of where your house is to the ground. Um, uh, next question. Robert Sabavity in Poland. How do you manage different socket and plug standards as well as 120 volt versus 240 volt sources when traveling to different countries? Go ahead, Courtney. Always travel with uh, a switching power supply that accepts 100 to 240 volts, 50 or 60 hertz, and that should protect you from blowing up your power supply. The other, then the problem is connecting it to the uh, to the power source, and you can get these plug adapters. You can buy them in almost any country, you know, Best Buy or any electronic store. They will sell international plug adapters, but make sure that your power supply or the piece of equipment that you're plugging in, if it has a power supply in it, is versatile for multiple voltages and frequencies. Uh, things like a hairdryer or something may not have, don't have any switching power supplies in them, so they will either blow up or work very poorly, depending on which voltage you plug them into. And most uh, transformer-type converters that you can buy to convert voltage between... Uh, uh, 110 to 240 can't take something that is uh, as high a wattage as like a hair dryer or a toaster or a heater. So make sure that you have appropriately powered equipment for the for the country that you're visiting. And I would not try and use anything that is resist, resistive heating in it uh, in a foreign country unless I bought it in that foreign country for that voltage. You go ahead, CJ. I used a clothing steamer that I bought in the U.S. in Belgium. I plugged it in, and it worked really, really well, really, really fast once. <laughs> exactly. Once. And then it started to smell. It started to smell. I, I've had a couple uh, situations where we've we've um, you know, not thought through it. Like most electronics, I assume, are going to be 110 to 240. So uh, we do look at it. I will put um, on the power supply, I often put red tape on it on it if it's a 110 only i mean usually we're buying things here so that i really am clear like hey this doesn't go there because but i look at all of them as they especially when we're getting ready to travel i look at all my power warts and i look at all the things and i really try to make sure that i know and we tend to take things out and then even things that aren't marked like we used to have a switcher we had this um uh panasonic 4500 or whatever that was you know twenty five thousand dollar switcher and it really looked like the power supply was 110 to 240. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it is. But on the manual, it says it's 110. And you're like, what do I do? And I call Panasonic. They're like, we think it's 240. <laughs> so, so the first day, I really needed to use it. And the first day, I, and I read it, and there were people on the internet that said it was fine. I plugged it in, it was fine. But it was like, they didn't even list it as that way. And I was like, you know, and I think that they did that just so you'd buy new ones for Europe or they'd separate those out. But the, um, anyway, 
almost all electronics will handle the whole length because it's just too expensive to manufacture two different power systems. And so generally they make them so they can handle both. As far as plugs go, and I was trying to find them. I can't find them. I used to buy these on Amazon. Um, we had a heavy use of what are called VTC power strips um, or VC, yeah, VTC um, power strips. And these um, uh, uh, VTCs basically have, uh, or maybe it's VCT. Anyway, um, that's maybe why. Hold on. Uh, VC, I'm sorry, uh, VCT, I think. Um, yeah, VCT power strips. And so there's a couple things that these these have. Um, so they have outlets and what you can do. Let me, I'll show you what they look like here. They're, I, I don't know. They don't seem to really pay attention. Like they don't seem to care about um, <laughs> about Amazon. But uh, I don't know who who buys them. But but anyway, so these ones here, and what you'll see in the kind of stretched videos here, you can see this, see how they have an outlet that goes, that has lots of different, so that outlet, that combination will handle not everything, but almost everything when it comes to what you might be plugging in. Now, this one has a, has obviously a power supply for the UK and it, you can buy ones that have different power supplies, but they make one of these and I'm going to see if I can find it quick enough. Um, and I have lots and lots of these. I mean, I, I got to a point where this is all I bought were these, um, these VCTs um, because I was like, I don't want to figure, I don't want to figure this out. I just want it to work. Now, the one that I, I'm looking for that I can't find immediately, I'll let someone else, else answer the question, is they make these VCTs with C13 inputs. So there's the, VCT makes these with a C13 input. And what that means is you have a, that standard, what you would put in the back of your most computers what in most of your production equipment is the power cord for the, v, for the VCT international cord. And so I started buying those. And what's great about those is that you can find a C13 cable to whatever the country is in any hardware store. I mean, literally, I was driving to Davos from, uh, you know, from in Switzerland, and we pulled into some small little town, um, and we got some little sandwiches. They were very good. And, um, and but we also walked over to, like, the local little hardware store. And, you know, they had a whole, what they had a whole section of? C13 cables. And so we just grab those. I'll just grab five of these. And then that powers my entire system in that country. And it's a really inexpensive way to solve that. I do tape them to the thing because I'm always worried they're going to get pulled out. But I, I do, you know, gaff them to the to the connector. But um, it works really well. Go ahead, Chris. Can't hear you, Chris. Uh, I yield. Okay, there you go. I yield my time. I can't remember what I was going to say. I got wrapped up in your C13 thing. Uh, power 241. Uh, I apologize. Getting old. Yep. Bye. Go ahead, CJ. The other thing I was going to say is uh, I get something like this. This is one from Anchor that it has some USB ports in it, and it can take 110 to 240. So then I only need one international adapter, and I have two plugs. So I can be traveling with a surge protector that'll take the voltage and power my equipment. The other thing is when in doubt, because so many things get powered off a of USB-C, if you're without a hub and you don't want to plug your wall warts for, your, for phones and things like that, charge it out of the computer. Use the computer as the charger because if, if you're regulating voltage to the computer, the computer handles the rest. The, the other thing to remember there, by the way, is that when you're talking about computers, is that you're, if you buy a little converter, you get one of those little travel boxes, one of the most common things they do is get rid of the ground. It's just a plastic ground that goes in, so you, it just takes it. And so just remember when you use that to plug, number one is you don't have a ground anymore. But most importantly, if you're using a laptop, um, when your hand is sitting on your laptop, you are the ground. 
like so you'll feel it if you put your hand in there you move it across the top of your of 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 your computer and you'll feel this like it feels like it's really smooth like it's like it, like you're floating over oh, top of electricity moving, yeah. because it's electricity that's moving it's little you know it's a little, little I voltage I can't believe that doesn't break the computer it doesn't break the computer, but it, but it, but what it does do is if you spend a lot of time in Africa, one of your computers will turn brown on where your hand sits and you realize, oh, that's, it's burning my skin into the, into the surface of the computer. So it's, 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 so you just know that, that you're, you, you are the ground if there's no ground. Um, I go remember ahead. being that's terrified on a train because it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm plugged into the train power, but all, but my laptop feels like it's on fire. It just, yeah, it's just, it, it, so that's, yeah, but so just know that anytime you don't have a ground, you may be the ground. Uh, go ahead, Bill. You'll remember that because the first time you do it, first time you plug a 110 device into a 220 outlet, the wispy white gas of life escapes from the plug. (laughs) It's a bad thing, usually with a popping sound. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the um, uh, we I, I did them in a in a hotel room. We were just doing our comms, you know, just little radios, not real comms. They were like radios before I understood what comms were, and um, and uh, they were like the little Motorola radio, like little radios that you buy. And I thought, oh, that'll be good for comms, and they're not. Um, anyway, so uh, but but I we're plugging them in in, in the UK, and you know they you're like you're like watching TV. no they didn't go it, the funny thing is it didn't happen quickly it was like over, over a couple minutes you're like time. i smell something and then suddenly you look over and something's like melting down and everything else and you're like eh, maybe i'm not gonna be able to use those uh yeah good next question michael graves in houston texas up next do you ever deploy instrumentation to be able to meter your electrical draw good courtney yeah i talked about that earlier the kilowatt thing you can get them at harbor freight somewhere in the u.s there's an international one i think that may handle 240 or 110 uh the p3 international uh, kilowatt you can also get now if you're talking about lighting equipment uh where you want to see how much load you've got on a leg of you know you're doing your own power distribution then you've got to get something that like a clamp on ammeter that uh, goes like this. You clamp it over one leg of your AC and it will tell you how much current is flowing through that leg. So it's non-contact. It's fairly safe. You don't have to actually attach it to the power itself. It just reads it inductively. So you can find those power meters around. And they also make a clamp on, uh, you know, permanent installation ones that you can put inside a wall or something around one leg of the AC power and bring it out to a meter so that you can constantly monitor the, uh, the amount of power that's going through that wire. Go, John. Yeah. Um, what I do for my deployments is uh, with the PDU management, I use a software. Um, it's called DSIM. It's a data center infrastructure management tool. And what you're able to do is send the information from your UPSs, from your PDUs into this and represent it. It can also be used across multiple different physical locations. Uh, so if you have smart PDUs that plug in and can have internet connection, they can report up to the cloud and pull in that information so you can see what the status is on a job site, uh, what the power looks like, how much draw there is, and just validate everything. Yeah, and what we got into, I don't have a picture of it, but in our in our power uh, or in our production trailer, we had a twenty four Pixel Core had a twenty four foot production trailer. We moved from asking for power to just putting a power distribution hub. I mean, like you can spend five thousand dollars and you put one in, and it took hundred. It would take up to a hundred amp three phase, and you just plug it in, and then we distributed power to everybody else. <laughs> we were just like, and then and then we had meters, and we had a ton of control, and we had a ton of understanding what those things are. It's, it's a bigger investment, 
but it was kind of life-changing. Now you just, you go to shore power, you've got the leads and you run the leads right into the system and then, and then you have a lot more control over what's happening. Now, next question. Callum McCorkland, Bournemouth and Leeds. I think we might have had this one earlier and moved it. Uh, question for the power panel experts. I've heard that the different about different wiring to get better sound and video. What is an isolated ground mesh network and how do you build it to have perfectly clean signals? Yeah, I think we did talk to this one before. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, so it's basically what you want to do is keep electrical impulses off of anything that's going to deal with sound or that needs a clean signal to operate quickly. Uh, Traditionally, you do that on any circuit. You want to isolate anything circuit that has motors or maybe fluorescent light ballasts. Those are two things. The badly wired ones of those create a lot of noise and it goes back up and down the electrical signal. And you want to keep that away from your signal line. So it's really good to have yep. something with a ground that you trust and then something else to power the stuff where it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, we talked about the grounding and power source. Uh, another thing to watch out for as far as keeping clean signals is induction, which is not necessarily the power you're powering into. But if you're running long cables, uh, hum can get into that uh, to low signal level cables like audio microphone cables. And so uh, a thing to address that would be something like this Canary uh, Star Quad. And it uses uh, two conductors for each single conductor in a normal uh, balanced cable. So, and they're twisted together. And so they form a, a cancellation path for any inductive hum that's going to get into that cable. And they're considerably better. And they have a full coverage shield as well. They're considerably better uh, at eliminating inductive hum off of a long microphone cable run. So look for the Canary uh, Star Quads. Next question. Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. If buying a battery backup system today for a work-from-home studio that cannot go down, would you go with an expensive traditional rack-based APC cyber power or with an EcoFlow Jackery-style portable power system? Uh, go ahead, John. I would go with the expensive traditional rack base, but uh, I think it's purpose built, right? So if I needed something that needed to be portable and I needed to take the, like the work from home studio could be from anywhere. The Jackery is probably the one I would go with. If I'm going to a, like a room in my house or something that's permanent, I'm going to go ahead and, and leave that in place because I don't want to fiddle with unplugging everything that's supposed to be permanent uh, and then taking this thing on the road. If there's no use case to bring it outside the house, I would use the rack. Good guy. Yeah, this is when the cloud's really cool. This evening I have a production where there's feeds are coming in from around the world. So the AWS obviously handles the power. So it's cool that we're not going to go down up there, but I'm controlling via splash top one of the instances. And I guess worst case scenario of the what I have in this room is oops, wrong one. Uh, I have just a couple of these little guys, and I was looking at buying more of them because I have in the other room to for the internet and for all my rack and server stuff. I have one of these. So I was thinking about buying another well, one of these versus, um, you know, one of these EcoFlows, not that big of one, but something in this range, because I've been wanting to get one of these anyway. So hence, hence the question, just, you know, yeah. buy, buy a bunch of these or... Well, I wouldn't get um, those. <laughs> don't get those. Well, don't get any more of those. those yeah, those ones, ones are um, horrible. They've yeah, yeah, I've don't watched do them just bzz, yeah, go so, down and so, then I'm out in four minutes. But the, 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 a, the APC 1500 is halfway between what you're talking about. You have a big rack. And then you have that little one and the APC, uh, they make the, the one that sits on the on your floor and it's got a battery that you can pull out and it's got all the controls on the front and it's halfway between. And that's what I, I mean, 
I used to own 80 of those. You know, like that's what we put into our kids. And they worked. The, we had some of them. We had to put big things on them because we took the beepers out. <laughs> so, 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 so that, um, you know, but because um, we, we would put a light somewhere. We didn't want it to beep during a show behind the stage. So we take them out. Uh, so we surgically remove the PZOs to to make them quiet. Um, but they have been workhorses. And, and, and so when I, halfway between the rack and the, I wouldn't use the little, I won't use one that I can't remove a battery. Like I will not. If I can't remove, that's the minimum requirement is that I have to be able to have a, remo- a removable battery um, because it's a different level. And then I have to be able to see on the front what's going on. So I would highly recommend those in-betweens for your non-rack stuff. Um, yeah. uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Jason White in New Orleans, Louisiana. Does anyone use a DC power distribution center in their rack to get rid of all the wall warts that take up so much space in flight cases? And he says something like this, and he has a link to a B&H product. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't looked at the link, but I certainly do. I have a you know a twelve volt, uh, ten amp power supply uh, that'll provide all the twelve volts to all the little modules. You know, can I got so many little converter boxes and stuff that are take, uh, you know, nine to nine to fifteen volts, and so then I'll go out of my twelve volt, you know, ten amp supply to all of those individuals with, uh, and you can you can find these little distribution cables that are designed for security cameras. So look in that in any security camera store that'll do power distribution. So they'll have, you know, five of those uh, uh, coaxial DC connectors to one female to five male. And those are handy to have to distribute to uh, all of the outputs with just a single cable coming off my 10 watt. 12 volt supply. I also have these little DC to DC buck converters that I buy on the internet for anything that requires five volts or nine volts to go that'll down convert. They're adjustable. So I'll plug them into the 12 volt and dial them down to nine volt. If it's something that requires nine volt DC. Go ahead, John. I've used these before in the past as well. Uh, this one looks a little expensive. One thing I found um, accidentally just because I'm a guitar player is the guitar pedals and the distributions of those can do usually 9 to 12 and sometimes have 24-volt outputs. Uh, so, And they're significantly cheaper than these, uh, this option that you have here. So looking into some of those options as well, um, those those have been really successful for me is saving all the wall warts. No one wants to deal with that in the back of a rack. Next question. Henry Ramos, Yonkers, New York. Do power strips have a shelf life? How often do you replace them? And do you replace power conditioners as well, like the Furmans? The power conditioners definitely have a shelf shelf life. Um, So they are going to reduce over time, especially over use. Um, uh, The power strips themselves, I don't know, I've had them for 20 years. I don't, I don't, I've never seen anything particularly change unless it's been put under pressure or water. Um, Next question. Walt Palmer in Lewis, Delaware, says during the second Reagan inauguration, extreme cold temperatures uh, caused the event to move from the mall to a local pro sports venue. ABC News had to bring in vendor TV trucks and rental gen sets. During the transit, the diesel gelled on the tractor and the Jenny. That's pretty cold. I have a lot of respect for people who do events in really, really harsh environments because I won't. <laughs> I'm like, there's a lot of there's a lot of things I can work on, and that's not the one I want to work on. So gasoline um, is solidifying. Yeah, when it's, when it's getting that cold, I'm kind of like, hey, let's move inside. Like, it's just that I'll tell people early on, like, hey, the weather forecast says it's going to be below ten, negative ten degrees. Let's do this inside, and there's a whole bunch of reasons to do that, like you know, in, including people's health, and you know, everyone gets sick, and there's a lot of other things. Yeah, go ahead, court, uh, guy, real quick. 
Yeah, doing this event in, in Austin a couple weeks ago, I mean, Keith Lee, see, seeing a guy like that operate, it's just amazing. He just comes rolling up. It's just like, we're not messing around. He, he just drops this big generator uh, right next to Video Village and just like, well, a little bit ways. It wasn't even that loud compared to what I thought it was going to be. But to see a guy like that and then having uh, a meal with him, him and his son shared some of the horror stories of their, because they do tennis events all over the country and how they'd get like one 20 amp circuit and they're just like, no more. We just come in, yeah. boom, with our own power, drop it down yeah. and we're off to the races. And that thing works like a champ, of course, because you could never yeah. trust the venue. Yeah, we got plenty of power then. Boosh, 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 boosh. It's a cascading failure. Yeah. Next question. Robert Shoji, Los Angeles. Before you plug your equipment into a standard outlet at a venue, what are the two or three things you check first? I go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I check uh, the polarity of the... I use one of these little plug-in detectors to let you know that the hot and neutral are not reversed and the ground is good. So that's the first thing I check. And then I check the voltage if I'm a little bit paranoid. Usually the little plug-in thing is, is will suffice and I keep them in all my kits. I would love to say I check everything, but mostly if I'm working with a ven- with a vendor that's doing that, I'm assuming that they're going to give me what I need. But I do plug the least important things in first. <laughs> so so I plug a couple things in. I don't put the rack. I don't plug the racks in immediately um, until I see how how it works. But that I don't. I, I would say that I'd love to say we do more, but usually we're going into facilities that do this every day, and we're and you know they they have to work, so we don't worry about it as much. Next question. Robert Sabobody in Poland says, how do you practically minimize the risk of somebody plugging in a kettle, and he's using that as an example of a high power drawing piece of equipment, into your clean or backup power circuit? Go ahead, John. Make sure you make it easy to plug in things off that circuit. So if if the easiest thing to do is the wrong thing, people will do it every time. Yeah, we. one of the things that we do is we put out a big thing that we do is put um, on specific circuits, we put lots of charging units um, so people can charge their phones, people can charge their their other things like that. By the way, it's great networking. Put charging units on the back of your thing where people are walking by and you get to meet everybody because everyone wants to plug in their phone. So the, um, so you have these charging units where we, where we want them and we put out to his point outlets that are exposed so that people can plug into the wrong things. And if those blow, it doesn't matter. Um, and then we, we are pretty jealous about... Um, where are our plugs go? Uh, and then we have a lot of headroom. Next question. Next one comes from James Fossiline in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Can you use an EMF microphone to help diagnose issues you might have in your power equipment? I've never done that. Neither have I. I just looked There's it up. It's EMF really interesting. Microphone? I, yeah. It's, it's Modular funny. Modular Synth Lab. Electromagnetic oh, field man. microphone. It changes it changes pitch, I guess. How well depending on. The I side. have a part in my. I have a corner over here that if I um, put my Heil microphone in just the right position, it will. Uh, it will. It will buzz. <laughs> it's not plugged in anything. All I have to do is move the mic, and it, it doesn't do it. So I don't. I move my desk away from there. I was like, if the Heil microphone is buzzing, I do not want to sit in that space. Uh, go ahead, uh, uh, Courtney. Yeah, a lot of uh, power testers will have uh, an EMF uh, detector. It's a, just a power detector. You just get it near. It's non-contact. You just get it near a wire or a power receptacle, and it'll light up a little LED to let you know there's power flowing through that receptacle or through that wire. But that's what I would call it. This looks kind of funky. This is, yeah. this is a yeah. 3.5 millimeter on top of a little suction yeah, it's a cup. a telephone and, tap. Yeah, yeah, yeah that looks like a kid thing. Super it's interesting. a telephone oh, yeah, tap yeah, yeah. for the old, old carbon yeah. headsets. Yeah, interesting. Uh, next question. 
CJ Covell in Down, Downington, Pennsylvania here on the panel. Do surge protectors and the UPS devices with Ethernet pass-through ports offer continuous signal conditioning or is their protection limited to emergency situations like power surges and lightning strikes? Okay, John. It provides continuous protection. Uh, I wouldn't recommend any sort of important equipment going to the other side of that pass-through port. Uh, my guess is it's just a dumb switch, and I would I would definitely not recommend it going through that. They're not putting the money there. I uh, used to see with old uh, power protection, they would have the coax as well as like the RJ11 uh, there to protect against line hits. Uh, if you're protecting the devices on the other side of it, I think it's very very much less important. Yeah, and and there are you know there are different types of systems that will pass through until you lose it, and then I I believe that you're looking for uh, online double conversion, which is basically you're powering the battery and then the battery is powering everything else, and that that's not in the smaller UPSs. Like so, when we have larger Lieberts that we put into systems, those are going to have that that double conversion. Um, so what what it's doing is the power coming in is powering the battery, the battery is empowering everything else. The other thing is the lifespan on those are lower because you're constantly running the battery. So um, so that's the other thing to take into account. But it is um, for the really high end stuff that we do, we want to do that to make sure that it's not actually touching the outside world. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael, are there any UPSs with voltage conversion capability? Uh, n- no. No, they they have to sit. You you do the voltage conversion before that. I mean, everything's one ten to two twenty, so you put it in. But most UPSs are one ten or two twenty. Like they are not one or the other. That would be that's a pretty complex thing. But what we typically do is, if we want to convert convert it, we put it ahead of it. But there's nothing that I know of that will plug you plug into the UPS and it lets you choose the voltages. I don't. I, I've never seen that. It may exist, but I've never seen it. Next question. Robert Soji, Los Angeles, is back when plugging an extension cable into a standard wall outlet of a venue. Is there a practical way to prevent the extension cable from coming loose from the outlet? Gaff tape. <laughs> so much gaff tape. You know, like like you just, you know, like you you tape everything down. You tape it to the wall. You tape it when you, you take it out of the wall and you tape it right at the bottom and you tape it in multiple places and you do it horizontally and then put vertical, then, then go long. And it would take a lot to trip it, but do it pretty early on. Um, uh, but we try to, you know, gaff tape and then uh, Velcro covers that we use for like carpeted areas and that, where you don't want to use gaff tape. And then obviously just, um, you know, a variety of other things like that. But but you do want to pay attention to those things. Yeah. And then a UPS. Not good, Courtney. What I do on all my electrical cables, I use a shoestring as a tie wrap to tie them up when they're coiled up and they wrap the shoestring around and tie it in a little bow. But when you put it in, the shoestring is always at the plug end of the uh, cable. So you plug it in and a lot of times on uh, uh, there's a place you can wrap that shoestring around and tie it up about five inches down the cable. So if somebody trips over the cable, it'll just yank on the shoestring, which is attached to something else and prevent it from being jerked out of the wall. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Do you check a live lighting lightning map before an event, and what protections do you employ if the risk is high? Um, I don't really check anything, but if we we do check for weather, and and I, I you know again we're in Northern California, so we don't interact with lightning that often. Um, but uh, but I but I will say that we look at the weather, and if it if it looks like lightning, and if it looks like it's coming, we just pay attention to it. Like it, you can't stop everything because you think that there's going to be a forecast for lightning, because then it doesn't happen, and then everyone you're just the, you're just the kid who cried wolf. So you have to like be kind of managed. But but we do pay attention. To, if we see lightning, 
we're, we're paying a lot of attention to how far away that lightning is. Again, get it to account under about 12 and we're worried. Like, you know, like, you know, like especially if we see it coming towards us. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. If you're doing a golf match or something where lightning can be, you know, a health issue to striking just people walking around, you need to, and you're running grounded equipment out there, I'd be very careful. I mean, and get people off of the field if there's a lightning storm coming through. I think it was the Monday night football or Thursday night football. The Steeler game got stopped by for like an hour because there was lightning too close and they just took, they, they, they told everyone to get out of their seats and go into the area. Like, don't be in this area. There, the lightning was close enough to the stadium that they had to worry about. It's the first time I've ever seen that in a football game. You usually see lots of rain, but there was some kind of protocol that they had planned, and they kept on stopping the game to make that work. You'll see it in golf golf tournaments all the time. They were clear for lightning. And don't stand under a tree. Yeah, that's straight. the worst. <laughs> do, do not do that. I've seen a tree get hit. It's pretty cool. It rips it right in half. Um, yeah, next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle. Hi, at a venue, how can you tell if you're on two separate circuit breakers? I go ahead, John. Become friends with the electrician. <laughs> That's the most important thing I mean, you can do. It's There should be a power plan map where you can understand the circuits and the layouts and understand. But honestly, most most of the venues that I'm working in, they have an electrician or I have to bring one in. And then they, they can help you determine that and make sure you're not overloading uh, any one circuit or any one leg, uh, depending if it's a three-phase or not. And a lot of times uh, we get lunch boxes that have different colored, um, uh, different colored outlets, and we're, we ask before we assume. But they might be red, blue, and green, and and then we we say, are these all different? Are these all different circuits? And that that tells you also to plug stuff in. You don't want to have a ground loop on. Don't do it across two of them. But it also tells you if you're doing primary backup, uh, you know, to something that you have actually two circuits that are there. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, get the uh, kilowatt uh, meter that I said earlier and check the voltage and then have somebody plug in that 1,200-watt uh, or 1,500-watt heater uh, in the next outlet over. And if the voltage drops on the outlet that you're monitoring, uh, it's on the same. <laughs> Very good. All right. Great set of questions. I, I, I know I say this every time we get to the end of it. I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to ask any questions. And of course, we got lots and lots and lots of questions and lots of great answers. Thanks to the panel uh, for all the great input here. We couldn't do this without you. And it was a lot of, a lot of good information. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great questions. We can't do that without you either. Um, uh, you know, we, this is a real short show if you don't. This would have been a 15-minute show if you hadn't asked any questions. Um, so we really appreciate all your input. Um, and thanks to uh, the, um, the incredible team on the back end that, that gets this done. It cuts this show seven days a week. Um, thanks to, to John, who has our, has our gear. Uh, you know, like, uh, the, 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 there it is. There's, there's, there's the show behind John. Um, and, uh, and thanks to uh, the incredible dev team, uh, the folks that are managing this, the engineering teams, the management teams. There's a lot of people involved in every one of these shows, and we really appreciate everybody's work. We traveled, we're going to talk, the Tlaloc reversal, which is the, uh, how, how many miles we would have had to walk. If we went over to, to ask John and then we went to Courtney and then we went to somebody else, how many miles would we have, ha, have had to travel? And that's the Tlaloc reversal, uh, traversal. And we, we would have had to travel 91,000 miles. Um, and that's 147,000 kilometers. And that's 727 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. I don't remember what I was going to say about the yeah. 110, 240. Yeah. Joseph has been yeah. keeping tally of all the devices that he's blown up in Slovenia where he moved. <laughs> he's like, yep, yeah. lost another piece of gear. 
we in in Rwanda, we just have to. It's a slow. You just have to know how quickly you can. We stopped. We had to stop using Macs. I know for me, couldn't stop. We had to stop using Apple products because we have to replace the power supply so often. You had to move to PCs so that we could open them up <laughs> because it was just it was too expensive to to do that. It's really it's hard. All right, all right, I'm out of here. Have a good day, guys. Take care. Good to see you, John.